Hello, everyone, and welcome to Movie Change Up, the Impossible Movie Remake Show. My name is Johnny Dupe. I am your host and the champion of Movie Change Up, um, and I am excited uh, for this episode. We are doing our second week in a row of rule versus rule matchups. For anyone who doesn't normally watch our show who might be tuning in, um, our contestants have seven movies um, and seven rules, and they must follow uh, one rule per movie. They're each going to pitch uh, their movie, and myself and my other co-judge will uh, choose the, the winner out of that. So first to four wins, and there are some other bonus um, perks if they win with more than and four uh, pitches that won. So this is an exciting episode. We had a battle last week, but today we work together. So I'd like my fellow co-judge to introduce himself. Yeah, I'm Bobby, and I happened to beat the champion last week for the first time since episode one. So that felt great uh, for Johnny to get a loss there. But uh, we're, we did team up, and I think we picked some great movies and some really fun rules. Um, this is a little different episode. Kind of, It's similar to last week where we're going rule against rule with some of our zanier rules. Um, so I'm looking to, forward to hearing some weird, interesting pitches that I think would make uh, some bizarrely entertaining movies to watch. Yeah, I, I agree. We picked some good ones here. Um, we have some wild rules and some, some fun ones, so I can't wait to reveal those. But I'll start off with um, our challenger today who's coming off of a loss in his last fight, but is looking to get the next two and earn a title shot. So Tristan, please introduce yourself. What's up guys? I'm feeling pretty good. Like Johnny said, I'm coming off of a loss, but I'm feeling like it's going to be a win this time. You know, if I win this, I'm up to win one. So I feel like that's a good positive take to go into the season further on. I'll you know, be positive on my wins. And you mentioned that Johnny lost last week and Joe is one win away from a title shot. So I feel like it'd be great to win. But at the same time, if I lose, am I really going to complain? Because it's a shot for Johnny to be taken down. Yes, and I feel are. like all of us on this show, we really just want to see Johnny lose. <laughs> so in the end, if I lose, I'll take it in stride because it means Johnny might lose too. But I'm hoping to win. I'm planning on winning. I'm really confident in my pitches. So I'm looking forward to the win here. I have more repeater rules than losses to our next contestant here that's going for the title shot potentially um so joe how are you feeling going into this week are you confident i'm feeling pretty good i like my pitches i put in some work i did some fine tuning today moved some things around i really like my cast i like my director i think you know i'm ready to go and uh tristan didn't do so well in his last match and i'm ready to prove that maybe tristan's just on a cold streak right now yeah maybe um or he just went up against the buzzsaw known as johnny dupe last time he lost but I'm pretty sure last time you guys faced Tristan won, so I'm interested to see the little uh, redemption here from Joe, maybe. Um, so with that being said, Tristan and Joe had a bet, and Tristan won that bet, so he gets to decide what rule we are starting off with today. You mentioned we had some weird rules this week. I'm going to go with one that's not quite as weird, but I think it'll be interesting to see how both of us go with it, and I'm going to go with the rule for Disney Musical. All right. Oh, I also forgot to read Yeah, I got it. it. Yeah, well, you can do the movies. I'll do the rules. That is clearly one of them, but uh, yeah. yeah one, of them guys. one of them is Disney Musical. Get ready for that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I'll read our movies this week. Bobby will do it, and then we'll get into it. Or Bobby will read the rules, and then we'll get into it. Um, so first of all, we have uh, Weekend at Bernie's from 1989. We went with last week, if you watched, we did movies from 1980 to 1984. This week, we're doing movies from 1985 to 1989. 
Um, second, we have Manhunter from 1986. And we have Highlander, also from 1986. We have a personal favorite, Over the Top, from 1987. We have Scrooged from 1988. Say Anything from 1989. And the Joel Schumacher classic, The Lost Boys, from 1987. So, Bobby, those are our seven rules. We know which one Tristan's starting with, but what are our what are our seven rules? I said our movies. Yeah. I got vaccinated yesterday. I'm You're good. Out. Yeah, a little out of it. I may, have to, I may have to take over hosting duty at some point. We'll see. <laughs> Um, I was like, no, I'm good. Yeah. Um, our seven rules for today are you, they must make the perfect movie for Johnny, make the per- perfect movie for me. Uh, one must be an animated Disney musical, which is what we're starting with. One must be uh, one must star Mads Mikkelsen and be a religious allegory. One must be set in the Dr. Doolittle universe. One must be a movie totally made for moms. Uh, and we're going to judge that based on our own mom, which is going to be yeah. interesting. Honor of Mother's Day, which was yep. last week. Uh, yes. Um, and one must be a body-switching movie starring Bane and Captain Jack Sparrow, which is one of the most bizarre rules that we have ever used, so I'm really looking forward to those pictures. Yeah, fuck you guys for that one, by the way. <laughs> I, I like you that can, rule. You can, you can specify it. I made up that rule. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> and I'm not just uh, appeasing to the Joe's show. excited for his, so I'm I'm interested to see. So, as Tristan mentioned, um, we're starting with one must be an animated Disney music. I'm interested yep. to see what movie both of you picked for that. For me, I went with one of my personal favorite movies on the list, and that's The Lost Boys. And I'll just go ahead right. and go first on this one. Or do you want him to describe the... Right. Oh, yeah, you want to give the plot for it? Yeah, I'll read the plot for The Lost Boys. It came out in 1987, as mentioned. It was directed by Joel Schumacher. And I got to imagine it's one of his highest rated movies because it has his 76% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, the movie is about teenage brothers Michael, played by Jason Patrick, and Sam, played by Corey Haim, move with their mother, played by Diane Weiss, to a small town in Northern California. While the younger Sam meets a pair of kindred spirits and geeky comic book nerds, Edward, played by Corey Feldman, and Alan, played by Jameson Newlander. The angst-ridden Michael soon falls for Star, played by Jamie Gertz, who, start, who turns out to be in thrall to David, played by the great Kiefer Sutherland, leader of the local gang of vampires. Sam and his new friends must save Michael and Star from the undead. So Tristan, you're going first. What's your pitch? Uh, so for my director, I'll start off with that. I went with Glenn Keane. He, uh, one you might know is Dear Basketball. He did that. It was his mm-hmm. first uh, directed uh, movie. And he also did Over the Moon last year, which got nominated for an Oscar. It was a really good kind of just adventure, family adventure movie. That's kind of what I'm going for here. And with Disney, he also worked as a character animator on a bunch of the classic stuff like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, Tarzan, a bunch of their really iconic classic stuff. And for my movie, I went with two brothers. I have Randall, voiced by Stephen Yoon, and Ian, voiced by Alan S. Kim, reunited the two from Minari together for this animated movie. And they're usually kind of distant siblings. Ian's living with the, their father, and, and Randall's been living with their mother, but R- Randall's just decided to come back to their small town and moving with their father. He's not quite happy about it. He is, isn't happy to move into this uh, small town, not quite the city life he was used to. And... I have their father voiced by Randall Park. Uh, and then I also have uh, their friend Haley, who was like a childhood friend of Randall. It's not kind of a grown-up woman uh, voiced by Kelly Marie Tran. She recently had a really good uh, live performance of like a bunch of Book of Mormon songs that convinced me she can sing. So I picked her for this Disney musical movie. 
And when the trio, uh, Randall, Ian, and Ke uh, Haley, are all exploring the local woods, they're ambushed by a gang of local rabble-rousing vampires. And they're also the childhood bullies who bullied Randall when he was a kid. It kind of convinced him to leave this small town in the first place. And they bite Randall, turning him into a vampire. And now him and his brother and their grandfather and Haley all have to work together as this sort of makeshift family to uh, go out and find the altar of the winged ancients hidden out in the woods by their town to find it by midnight, they can reverse the curse and he won't be a vampire anymore, but if they don't, he's a vampire forever and he's stuck in this small town and he can't leave and he's immortal and he's there forever. So you get this uh, nice kind of family bonding storyline that is what Disney likes to do. You bring in some siblings together, bonding with their dad, bonding with Haley, and I have the vampire locals. I have them cast as the lead kind of big bad guy in sort of the role that Keeper Sutherland had. A little bit more of like a seductive kind of vampire role that's voiced by Ewan McGregor. And the secondary vampire is Emmy Rosen. She was in Shameless and she also can sing really well. And then the third is kind of like the comic relief vampire is voiced by Nick Kroll, who can also sing. He was in a couple uh, animated movies that we were saying. And that's essentially what my pitch is. You have these this family having to work together and they've been distant for a while. So they're trying to learn how to bond and learn how to come together. So we have things where like the two brothers who haven't really been friendly to each other are having to sort of work together and learn things about each other along this journey to find this uh, find this ancient ruin in the woods. And it's just kind of a nice family adventure movie. I went with a director who had experience with that kind of stuff, just musical adventure kind of stuff. And I really like my cast. I really think the premise works if you twist it into a Disney kind of adventure story with the vampires and the kind of fantasy elements in that. So that's my version of The Lost Boys as a Disney musical. All right, Tristan, my, my one question is so I can kind of picture your movie better in my head. What's the animation style? Is it going to look more like Tarzan, like 2D kind of, or is it going to be 3D animation like the newer Disney movies? Like It'll be like the newer Disney movies, similar to Over the Moon, where it has like a really, I love the animation style of that, plus Riot and the Last Dragon looked really good. Like I just like the, the recent couple of ways Disney's done these animated movies, so I'm going to go for that. All right. Um, also, will the song reverse this curse by Escape the Fate being here? You gotta get it in there, you know? <laughs> be an you interesting get, choice. to sing along? <laughs> yeah. Probably not, though. Yeah. I don't know. I just got, they have to reverse the curse, and that's the immediate thing I thought of. Joe, what movie did you pick for this role? Uh, I picked the movie of Say Anything for this role. All right. Say Anything came out in 1989. It got a 98% on Ron Tomatoes. The director's Cameron Crowe, um, and the description of this movie is, In a charming, critically acclaimed tale of first love, Lloyd, played by John Cusack, an eternal op optimist, seeks to capture the heart of Diane, played by Lone Sky, an unattainable high school uh, beauty and straight-A student. It surprises just about everyone when she returns his sentiment. But Diane's overly positive or possessive divorced father, John Mahoney, doesn't approve and it will take more than a than the power of love to conquer all so joe what's your disney animated say anything all right so my directors are dean dublah and chris sanders who directed uh how to train your dragon as well as lilo and stitch uh so my main character lloyd is going to be a basset hound and one of the things too is they're gonna these characters are gonna look more kind of like the zootopia animals or the uh, animals in Disney's Robin Hood where they're like anthrop anthropomorphized and like standing and walking around um, 
So the main character, Lloyd, is a basset hound, and he's played by Shamik Moore. Uh, and then we have his best friend, Jack, who is a Jack Russell Terrier, played by Donald Glover. And then his love interest, Diane, is a poodle, voiced by Lily James. And her father, Jim, is a, also a poodle, voiced by Kevin Bacon. And then his, her dad's like best friend uh, is like a golden retriever, uh, voiced by John C. Riley. So I wanted to go for like a 1950s kind of Norman Rockwell type aesthetic, because I felt like that kind of era and time is... Like, they've made movies during that time, but I don't feel like we ever have have had a Disney animated movie kind of set in that time. So I thought that could be, like, an interesting, different take. And then the music style, like, I didn't have really any, like, songs written for this movie. But kind of the style and tone is, like, the Elvis, Little Richard, kind of Frank Sinatra style tone for the music. Uh, and then, like I said, with the animals being anthropomorphized. And so for my plot, I have Lloyd as a lowly working class dog trying to make it as a singer because he wants to be like his dad, who was a background singer, uh, trying to be a lead before he died. Diane is a high society, aristocratic socialite poodle. Lloyd meets her at a show and asks her out after being hyped up by his friend. And as a shock to everyone, she says yes. Things go well and we see them date, which is what a large bulk of the movie is. Uh, including them share their first kisses can't help falling in love by elvis plays which is my only like old like pre-made song all the rest of the songs in the movie would be original um uh, her dad who is the mayor of their small southern town doesn't like lloyd he conspires with his uh friend which is the golden retriever played by john c Riley, to get rid of him including paying him to leave offering to help his career uh to get him to move out of the town but Lloyd loves Diane too much and doesn't leave. Eventually, the dad tells his daughter she needs to leave him, and he doesn't want his grandpuppies to be mutts. Uh, not wanting to upset her dad, she leaves him, and Lloyd's friend, and then Jack t or Lloyd tells his friend Jack, who then tells him he isn't a puppy anymore. He is a grown dog and needs to go get her back. Lloyd shows back up to her house with his guitar, singing "Can't Help Falling in Love" by Elvis, as kind of an homage to. Lloyd showing up holding the boombox over his head in the original. Diane discovers her father has been trying to sabotage her relationship all along. Diane leaves saying she can't forgive him and she and Lloyd are going to California for Lloyd's music career. And that's my pitch. All right. All right. I like both of those. Bobby, do you have any questions for him? Yeah. Um, so for Tristan, just because Joe described pretty in detail what his uh, music kind of style is, and I, I don't, I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but I missed it in yours. If you did, uh, what type of music is going to be in your movie? I was really inspired by the way they did this, this music out of Lion King. I think I wanted to really make my villain like a prominent figure. I think Disney stepped away a lot from their villain roles, and I really mm -hmm. like the Be Prepared song from uh, Lion King. So I want to give Ewan McGregor that kind of big kind of Broadway almost level song and I, I think Lion King when you listen to that soundtrack is like banger after banger after banger so I really just want to go for like a classic kind of Disney throwback soundtrack with mine okay um, I didn't really have a, too big of a question for Joe um, I'm just kind of curious it's interesting because I see elements of Onward in Tristan's pitch and I see elements of Soul with like the um, character dying with you know the kind of the musical desires and that in Joe's kind of some recent Pixar movies so they definitely have themes that Disney likes to use uh, and I like both concepts so uh, I'm looking forward to the, to the pitches yeah I would say my only question um, 
is Joe did address like the loss of a character and how someone's dealing with that in his, which I think is vital to a Disney um, product. Um, Tristan, you can start the argument, but start with um, what kind of makes yours a Disney animated movie and not just any other animated movie. Like, uh, what before, kind of Disney themes do you have in there? Before he answers, can I answer quickly who's judging this round, or is this a co-judging? Um, this is Bobby is making yeah. the rule. Okay. Yep. Well, I mentioned that Randall had to move back in with his father, and that's because his mom recently passed away, so we have that element of, like, a loss in the family that's kind of what uh, pushes them to come together again, and I think you have, like, a bonding moment towards the end where they really open up, and you have the arc where, like, the dad's not really necessarily open about his emotions. He's trying to be strong for his kids, and then the kids are trying to be strong for each other, you know, and then you get a moment towards the end where they all kind of embrace each other and really kind of come together with, with his loss. Yeah, I like that. Um, so yeah, just kind of fight it out, I guess, at this point. You guys got about five minutes. We'll give you till about 7.25 and kind of make the, make the call. Then if I, you know. I really like that I had a prominent villain in mind. I think Disney villains are like one of the most memorable parts of Disney movies, and I really wanted to focus on that and make my villains interesting and memorable. And I think Joe's, like the villain is what, like a dad that is mean? Well, <laughs> I like think mine is just much, much more interesting villain. One of the things I had in mind because of the 1950s aesthetic and like the Norman Rockwell of it all that I wanted to focus on is like you start and it's like okay there's like the golden retriever like oh he looks nice and like the girl poodle and her dad and it, on the surface everything looks all and it's this small little kind of southern type town and on the surface everything kind of looks like normal and pristine and then when you peel back the layers and you find out like the dad is like basically like racist against this basset hound and the golden retriever who you see initially as like this kind like nice kind of bumbling friend is helping you know is in on that whole angle and i wanted to have kind of that subtext of it's set in the 1950s but i'm also not ignoring those aspects of the 1950s so like the dad's more than just mean he's kind of like he's like has like the racism aspects and stuff that i feel like is concepts you can introduce to kids in like in smaller like subtler ways and so he does he's more than just like oh he's a mean guy so you're going back to the well of, oh, racism was bad in the 50s, and now it's all right. I get that. But, yeah. But, I mean, you that's still an about... aspect that is still prevalent today of people who are like, oh, I don't want you dating, like, outside of your race. It's more just, like, that setting that I wanted from the get-go. It's not necessarily like, oh, it's bad this way. And it's not necessarily – and there's it's never explicitly like, oh, this movie is – you know, there's a calendar that says, like, 1955. That's more of just kind of the – aesthetic i was going for and the music and the tone i was going for but it's never like oh this is 1955 and all the problems are in 1955 and these aren't problems that are dealt with today or anything like that and you want to talk about like a small town that seems nice on the outside and you peel it back and it's not what what's worse than vampires like you have a small rainy forest town you think it's like just this dreary kind of like Washington little town and then you peel it back and you're oh these are these vampires these, these immortal beings who are there constantly causing problems who were bullying Randall in the past and now he's back and they haven't grown up and changed but he's grown up and changed and he has to kind of face his bullies and face his past I think that's a lot more interesting I think that's a really complex theme I think you see the bonding I really like the bonding in Disney movies a family bonding I think mine's much more better with that I think you get the bonding of the brother and the and the two brothers and the dad I just think I'd really like to see those characters come together and grow. And your your doesn't seem like it has much growth to the characters, really. It's like the dad's bad and racist, and then he's just bad and racist. But you also have the girl, because he initially doesn't go with her dad, and it's her kind of realizing 
who her dad truly is. So she grows in that way. Uh, the Lloyd is able to grow for himself and stand up for himself and try to prove himself. So he grows in that way. So my characters do grow. I feel like your movie is just like, is basically, to me, it just seems like onward, but switching out you know trolls or whatever they were in that movie for vampires it's just like oh it's these two brothers going on their adventure but like uh, their dad is alive in this version so i feel like you almost lose like that gut punch kind of aspect where the son only gets like those few seconds with him like i feel like yours is just like a lesser version of onward you still have the gut punch of the mom being dead and them having to deal with that loss you know and you have the moment of the bonding at the end. That would be a nice tear-jerking moment where they have to, they kind of like come together over this loss. And I think you, that would have the heartstring pulling that I don't necessarily think yours has at all. I, f- I feel like mine has the heart when he when he shows up with his guitar to play the song for her that played when they had their first kiss. I feel like that's definitely your heartstring pull moment where she runs out to him. It's like your big heartstring pull moment. So your heartstring is like this youthful love. I get that. That's kind of interesting. But a mine is about family bonding. It's about loss. It's about moving forward after loss, moving forward with your life and facing your past and facing your problems rather than bottling them up and hiding them. I think that's a much more heartstring pulling theme than just loving someone. It's about like standing up for your parents and standing up for what's right and doing the right thing. You know, especially, you know, especially when you're having a message for little kids, it's like sometimes your parents might not always you know, have the right answer and might not always make the right decisions. Yeah, and I think when you're talking about messaging for little kids, I think more now more than ever, kids are facing death and loss in their lives. They're seeing things in the news. They're seeing all this death around them. And this teaches them how to deal with that, how to deal with death in your immediate life, how to deal with death around you, and that it's okay to feel that emotion. It's okay to feel that grief. It's not something you have to bottle up and hide. It's something that's human. It's something that they can experience and they can talk to their parents about. That if they're feeling this level of grief, maybe they're maybe their parent has died from COVID and they're not sure how to how to process that and this movie's about them learning that it's okay to process that process that it's okay to talk about that it's okay to open up to your parents and say how you're feeling and not bottle up your emotions and hide them but I also feel like there's 800,000 million I mean, you guys movies. got about 30 seconds left my final yeah, comment is gonna be if you need to show a Disney movie that has to deal with death like mine still has that death aspect with his you know him trying to deal with his father's death but also racism is just a thing that's talked about on the news and shown in the news and can be a thing kids confront just as much as death and it's something that's you know still has those aspects of Disney movies you know to keep it that you know uh, classic type Disney movie but also is something that Disney hasn't really covered before yeah, I don't know. I just don't necessarily trust Disney to deal with race on any level other than like the very, very surface level of like racism is bad. Disney barely touches on political themes at all in their movies, and every time they do, it's like the most lightweight possible way to do it. So I just don't think that they're right. that's the right theme for them to explore right now. I mean, there's first the more people keep talking about, the more people keep saying that Disney's like not doing it right. The more that it's going to push them to eventually address it. I think sure. my decision, yeah. Bobby, but you're making the final call. So is there anything you want to hear from them before you do, or you think you got your mind made up? I think I have my mind made up. It it might. I'm curious to see if it differs from yours, but uh, I want to hear what your thoughts are first. Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, I, I was pretty split when they started. Um, I really like Joe's use of, like, getting those Disney themes. I felt like he kind of hit that really well. But as they fought... I think I leaned more towards Tristan just based on a couple aspects. I think 
his movie is like Joe made the perfect like eighties or nineties Disney movie, but I think we're past kind of the movie he made. And I think Tristan followed the trends of the current Disney animated movies a little better. I think even with his animation style, I could picture his better with the characters he he did. Um, I think the representation of Asian culture is a big thing in Hollywood right now. And I think Tristan did a good job kind of representing that. Um, and you already saw Disney go that direction um, and try to represent different cultures with movies like Moana and um, Ryan the Last Dragon. And I think that is always much more impactful to me than even like Joe compared his movie to Zootopia in a way. And I feel like the message in Zootopia kind of gets lost because it's animals and not real people. And I think Tristan just kind of wins on that aspect. I think Joe maybe made like a throwback Disney movie, but I think we're kind of past that at this point. I think that kind of came out in the argument. So I would lean towards Tristan, but I still like both uh, both pitches. Yeah, you, you fall on the same side as me. Um, Tristan is gonna gonna get the point here. And one of the main deciding factors, because I like both movies, even though Joe's was a throwback, um, just as like a visual style, I could really picture Tristan with the vampires and, and the it could lead to, to some very interesting visuals with what he described and also the music to go along with that being more of a, a musical, like a production, like a theater production, I think really fit um, and was a little bit more just a little bit more visually interesting to me as far as that's concerned. But a lot of your, your points are a lot of the same reasons that I was leading Tristan as well. So Tristan's going to take a one nothing lead. I'll take it. So that was a close one. I, those were both, uh, yeah, they were both good. pitches than most of Bobby and I's last week. So this, I think, is going to be a, a good fight. Um, so let's, uh, let's go. Joe, you are picking the next rule to face up on. All right, I'm going to go with it must star Mads Mikkelsen with uh, and have religious so allegory, whatever the fuck. I, 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 I'm only seeing like the shrunk down, whatever I cut it down to on the, yeah. on the page. This, it must star Mads Mikkelsen include religious allegory. Yeah, I have Mads Mikkelsen's last religion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any of those should well, work. <laughs> I'm excited. So, Joe, who's, who's going first? Uh, I'll let Tristan go first. All right, Tristan, what movie did you pick for this? For mine, I went with something that I think could lean into that uh, religious theme, and I went with Scrooge for mine. I have a feeling that might be yeah. matched up with at least one of you for this rule. So, mm -hmm. Scrooge came out in 1988. Um, it has a 71% of Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is a little low. Um, and director is Richard Donner. So, the description is, in this modern take on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Frank Cross, played by Bill Murray, is a wildly successful television executive whose cold ambition and curmudgeon, curmudgeonly nature has driven away the love of his wife, Claire Phillips, played by Karen Allen. But after firing a staff member, Elliot Loudermilk, played by Bobcat Goldthwait, um, on Christmas Eve, Frank is visited by a series of ghosts who give him a chance to reevaluate his actions and right the wrongs of his past. So Tristan, you're going first. What is your pitch for your Scrooge film? I'll start out with my director. It's uh, Julian Schabel, who did Eternity's Gate. It was a Vincent Van Gogh biopic slash like character study that had it was a uh, Willem Dafoe played Vincent Van Gogh and Mads Mikkelsen played like a secondary artist that was in the movie like a secondary character to him. So he's worked with Mads Mikkelsen before, and I think he got a great performance out of him in that movie. So I brought him back for this. And in my version, Mads Mikkelsen he plays. 
uh, Father Frank, a kind of corrupt and apathetic priest who is kind of like an alcoholic and a, not really like a very good priest at all. You know, he's not active in his parish. He just kind of sits around and drinks, and he's lost his faith pretty much completely. Uh, and the night before Christmas, he sees visions of the ghost of Christmas past, uh, present, future, showing him how the hope and faith he once had in his youth was lost as he entered the priesthood and he totally lost his focus on his spirituality and the religion that brought him there in the first place. In my Ghost of Christmas Past, I have Michael C. Hall. He is the ghost of Father uh, Jacob Marley. He was a priest in training that uh, Father Frank was kind of in love with during his youth. They had kind of a romantic flings while they were in the priesthood studying, and we see his past as kind of like a caring, anxious young man who's in this secret relationship, and he's kind of a bit ashamed of it and not sure what what to do about it and uh, when his lover is out of his gay in the flashbacks Frank makes the decision to turn against to to sort of like abandon him and continue on with the priesthood and let his his former lover kind of fade off into obscurity and the reason that his his court and long night of the soul is triggered in the first place is that he gets a call saying that um, father Marley had killed himself so that's kind of like the triggering of what makes him look back at his past differently and get this whole uh, ghostly presence in his in his Christmas night. And the ghost of Christmas present, I have played by Oscar Isaac. He's sort of like this chain-smoking, hard-drinking, kind of nihilist. He's an embodiment of uh, Matt Mickelson's uh, current, like, self-destructive and pessimism kind of his, his behavior. And I think Oscar Isaac can pull it off really well. I think he's kind of in, kind of in the vein of, like, his ex machina performance where he's like this kind of sociopathic almost kind of person where he's kind of embodying like what what father frank sees as himself now like this kind of like fuck it who cares kind of personality and he's kind of embodies like what what he is in the current day and i think we and we see like the since he's the ghost of the present you're seeing like the most recent couple months and recent days and you're seeing all these times where he could have helped parishioners but the fact that he was self-absorbed and he was He'd rather be drunk helping people. He wasn't able to help his parishioners, and he's told himself, like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm still a good priest, but in reality, through this ghostly presence, he's learned that he's not. In my Ghost of Christmas Future, I have played by Willem Dafoe. Like I said, he was also in Eternity's Gate, to so be reuniting with both Maz Mickelson and the director. And he plays this sort of vengeful, angry, older man, and he's kind of representing in the allegory of this as being like the Old Testament God, who's like this angry, vengeful kind of God who's coming down and saying like, oh, you've hit the end of your life, and you failed me, and now you're going to burn all eternity, you know, and he's sort of like embodying Father Frank's fears that he's going to get to the end of his life and realize like, oh, all of this was actually for nothing, and I I was, and this priesthood for nothing, and I, I and he kind of is, is what he's terrified of, of getting to the end and realizing that it was all actually not correct and then the next day which is christmas morning he's giving his christmas day uh sermon at his mass and he announces to his parish that he is in fact gay and he tells the story of father uh, marley and the history together and kind of announces that he's going to step away from the church that he thinks he's realized through that night that he can be faithful he can have some spirituality in his life but that he doesn't have to be part of this systemic oppression of the, of the church. He doesn't have to be part of this abusive system that he can step away and have his beliefs, but he has to take care of himself and he has to get himself get himself better before he can do anything else. 
and I wanted it to sort of be an allegory without having it just be like a come to Jesus kind of allegory. I want it to be like a way of him realizing the flaws in the system that he's part of and realizing he's been part of those flaws. He's reinforced those flaws. And he doesn't pull that kind of like 180 thing that we see in, in the Christmas Carol where he's like all of a sudden running around dancing saying, oh, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And he, but you get this moment of like, he's setting himself on a path for redemption. And that's what I want to get out of this. He's, he's on a direction to improve himself and he's restored his faith but at the same time stepped away from the church and that's my pitch for Scrooge as a Mads Mikkelsen religious allegory alright I have some notes on that um, but I love the idea of Mads Mikkelsen playing the Scrooge type character so Joe what movie did you choose for this role? All right. I might have went with the chalk pick but I chose Manhunter alright interesting I'm curious to see why this might be the chalk pick um Oh, what happened? Okay, here we go. All the screens went black for me for a second. All right, so Manhunter. Uh, 93% of Rotten Tomatoes came out in 1986. I think a lot of people don't really know that this was not exactly the first movie of the series of Silence of the Lambs, but this was the first book in that series that was made um, five years before Silence of the Lambs came out but they're not really connected. The director, like I said, I think it was, is uh, Michael Mann. Um, and it's about FBI criminal profiler Will Graham, played by William L. Peterson, is called out of early retirement to assist on a serial murder case involving a killer known as the Tooth Fairy, played by Tom Noonan. Graham enlists the help of imprisoned serial killer and cannibal Dr. Hannibal Lecter, played by the great Brian Cox, who is the reason Graham took an early retirement. Soon, Graham and the FBI are entangled in a deadly cat-and-mouse game between the Tooth Fairy, Lecter, and an interfering journalist played by Stephen Lang. So, Joe, go ahead with your Mads Mikkelsen religious allegory movie. Now I just realized why it's the chalk pick. All right, so my director is David Fincher, and then I chose, for the role of Hannibal Lecter, I chose Mads Mikkelsen, who played... Lecter on the NBC show Hannibal which got good reviews everyone that watched it loved it unfortunately just not enough people watched it and kind of my approach with this is it would take place a number of years after the show it wouldn't really go against the show if you've never if you've never seen an episode of the show you're not missing anything but if you're a fan of the show it's like hey I get to watch you know this kind this character that I liked played by this actor but you are missing something because the show is great it is really good alright but so my Hannibal Lecter is Mads Mikkelsen, and then my character of Deputy Eve Malum is going to be played by Carrie Mulligan. Her father, Sheriff Malum, is going to be played by Dwight Yoakam, who worked with David Fincher in The Panic Room. And then my role of Michael Wright is going to be played by Daniel Craig. So Eve Malum is a deputy of the town of Eden, New York, whose population is around 7,600. Her dream is to take over as sheriff when her father retires, and a serial killer named the Kane Killer, that's C-A-I-N, because he forces, uh, named so because he forces men to kill their brother, springs up in Eden. The sheriff, who is old school and wants to solve the case without FBI interference, decides to solve the case himself before contacting the feds. Since he doesn't have anyone with behavior analysis experience, he decides to visit Hannibal Lecter, who was recently transferred to a mental institution in upstate New York. He brings his daughter, who Hannibal takes a liking to. He sees something in her and tells the sheriff if he wants info from him again to send Eve alone. 
When they hit a wall in the case, the sheriff reluctantly sends Eve back. Eve knows if she can solve the case, it will make her the obvious choice to be the new sheriff. Her dad tells her to get what her dad tells her to get what she needs, but get in and get out, and that Lecter is a master manipulator. Hannibal tells her that he will tell her what she wants to know, but she must come visit him every day. He can see her ambition, and he can teach her everything he knows. Throughout the movie, Hannibal is dropping little nuggets of info to help Eve solve the case, like the fact that the killer must have had a brother himself, and that he was probably the killer's first victim, and as well as the killer's age range. However, Eve is getting closer to Hannibal and is becoming entranced by him. He even convinces her that if he is truly to help her, he must see the crime scene for himself. Eve, being a deputy, is able to sign him out of the mental institution and takes him to the crime scene. Uh, throughout the movie, we see the neighborhood dentist, Michael Wright, who is friends with the sheriff. We assume he might be the cane killer because he's played by uh, uh, fucking Daniel Craig, so it's like kind of assumed, okay, he's going to be the villain. Uh, and then it's confirmed about a quarter to midway through the movie when we see him force one brother to kill another in the town. Later, after seeing Hannibal a few times, uh, when after Eve sees Hannibal a few times, Michael stops by Eve's house claiming to check in on her in a very tense scene. He asks about the case and what Hannibal is like. Eve eventually checks Lecter out again, but this time he escapes. Eve uses the information she learned about behavior psychology from Lecter and tracks him. She and the audience find out that Lecter lied to her. The cane killer had a brother, but his brother wasn't his first victim. He never killed his brother at all, but he wanted to be but uh he wanted to because his brother tormented him his whole life and he has the scars to prove it. Michael Wright was not born Michael Wright, but Misha Lecter. When his brother got transferred just a few miles away, all of the memories, feelings, and emotions come back and he started the killings. The movie ends with Hannibal Lecter killing his brother and escaping into the night and Eve knowing her sheriff dreams are over. So it's kind of the allegory of like the devil tempting Eve to bite the apple. Yeah, it's uh, the serpent and the yeah. yeah, and then she, you know, bites the apple. And, and Cain and Abel. And, yeah, Cain and, and Abel. Kind of nailed the religious the allegory, and that sure. that brings me to my only question I have of Tristan is: your movie definitely has religious themes, but I fail to see the actual allegory in it. Like, what is this? I feel like yours is a little too on the nose as far as religion goes. It's not like a movie that I picture as like an allegory, like the. Like Star mother. Wars prequels or mother yeah. that don't yeah. you know that don't actually deal with religion, but the story is based on it, you know, in maybe subtle and sometimes not so subtle references. So how well, for you... me, the allegory is that these three characters are essentially the Trinity. You have the Christus past, who is like this Holy Spirit type person who's been within uh, Father uh, Father Cross or Father uh, Frank for this whole entire time, and. He's sort of like this this fire that's been inside him and what initially pulled him into the faith and is what was pushing him through this whole entire journey of his life. And they have Oscar Isaac, who's sort of like this, it's this twisted version of like a low Christ, low Christ kind of Jesus, where he's like this very human kind of uh, version of a God. And he's very much like dealing with human flaws and human struggles. And similar to like the last edition of Christ, like William Dafoe's version of Jesus in that movie, where he's like very human and not, not like the godlike kind of Christ. And you'd have the William Dafoe at the end who's like I mentioned in the pitch, he's sort of like the embodiment of this Old Testament God, this vengeful God who's coming in. So I wanted to get these three very different versions of the members of the Trinity in my movie, where you're having you're exploring like these interpretations of what those three different figures can be in, in a religious person's mind. 
That was my biggest question for sure. I mean, that was right away, and I wanted—I was waiting to see how Joe handled the allegory. Um, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll show—I'm—I'm I'm leaning pretty heavily runway right now, but the arguments could sway me. It's not like I don't like—like um, I'm leaning towards Joe because I think you nailed the allegory. But Tristan, I, you, you can still win me back. But I'm—I'm I'm also not making the call on this. It's Johnny, but that—that's where my mind is, and I don't really have any other questions on it. Yeah, I, I would, um, honestly, I think I'm leaning the same way, but maybe not as heavily. I think I really like Chris, Tristan's cast um, and his director choice. Um, and I think, depending on the argument, he could win me back. But mm-hmm. we'll give you guys yes. about five minutes, and we'll see what you uh, what you have to say. And I'm going to meet real quick and grab a drink. I'll start off and say that I think Joe made a mistake by having this connect to the show. I think if you're going to make a sequel to the Hannibal show, I don't want it to be Fincher. I want it to be Brian Fuller. I want him to be the one who's doing it. He's the mind behind that show. He's the art behind that show. He's the writer behind that show. He made that show what it is. you know. And I think if you're handing this off to a totally different name, a totally different director, you're not going to have that consistency, the feel, the tone, the style between the show and this. I think you need to bring Brian Fuller back if you're going to make a Hannibal sequel. And handing it off to Matt to a different director with a different style a different tone is going to more so confuse people than anything else like you're going to people are going to say oh do i have to watch that show beforehand do i not is it's connected is it not it's not the same guy it's not the same studio it's not any of the same stuff it's just the same actor you know and i think that would just turn people off and i i don't think the fans of the show would be happy with this either sure it's mad mickelson back but you're not having brian fuller back without brian fuller it's not hannibal and without brian fuller i don't really want to see mad mickelson back as hannibal i want brian fuller to be the one telling the story Without him, it's not even worth telling, really. But I think, too, it's more of just, like, the connection of it's the same universe. Like, we've seen actors pass the... Or we've seen, you know, within movies, directors pass the baton or something, or a movie that's in the same universe. And, you know, to get a better version. Like, I feel like most people like Wonder Woman better than most of the Zack Snyder movies, and that's the same universe with the same character. We've seen, like, the most recent Planet of the Apes where, uh, you know, Matt Reeves took over and people prefer that ver- you know people prefer the second two to the first one like we've seen that and i feel like overall david fincher is a much better filmmaker than brian fuller and i thought about bringing brian fuller but i'm like i would much rather see a david fincher directed hannibal lecter movie than a brian fuller directed hannibal lecter movie because but if you're bringing people... Nicholson back you cannot just and it's not just in the same universe it's the same character it's the lead character from one being the lead character of the other you need it's gonna. It's not gonna feel like a different take on the on the, on the universe. It's gonna feel like a sequel, but it's not gonna feel like a sequel because it's not Brian Fuller. You, but you're not yeah. gonna have the fans. But Hannibal Lecter is also side not here. the main character of my movie. The Carrie Mulligan character is the lead character of my movie, so it definitely changes that. With your movie, I feel like your movie feels like the two popes that were just like a ghost visits him. Like I heard your pitch, and I feel like if that were truly a movie, like it could be there's a very good chance that your movie is just like boring of just like the two popes or any of these other a lot of like heavily religious movies just seem to not be very interesting and as far as like a scrooge reboot like yours maybe is like a type of christmas uh christmas carol type thing but if i'm going to see a scrooge reboot and it's like this dark serious movie about priests like i don't know if that's necessarily like scrooge like Mine's not going to be boring because my director is great. My cast is great. They're going to make a great movie. My director, you could, a Vincent Van Gogh biopic, that could be the most boring thing ever, but the director made it really enticing and really engaging. And I think he could take 
material that show you saying, oh, it could be boring, but it's not going to be because my cast is great, my director is great, my writer is great, like, it's going to be a really good movie. And it takes the core story of Christmas Carol and kind of modernizes it and brings it into modern themes and brings in religion themes. And I think mine sounds really with, like, engaging and really... is like modern themes, though. Well, that's the whole point is that, like, he's fearing the Old Testament God as being the the one that's coming to get him. And we have these different takes on religion. That's the whole point. Like, there's these three very, very different takes on what religion can be. And he's having these warring kind of views of what is religion to me. Is it the Old Testament God? Is it the low Christian kind of Oscar Isaac Jesus? Is it the Michael C. Hall guy who's like this caring Holy Spirit who's inspired me my whole life to do what I'm doing? And that's my version of, of this allegory here. It's him his internal battle of like what is religion to me and what do these characters represent like what does god represent to me what does jesus represent to me what does the holy spirit represent to me and that's and i think the director can make it great i think the cast michael c hall oscar isaac willem dafoe Madden, like those are great great actors that are really going to bring out the material and i and i feel like carrie mulligan and uh, uh fucking mads mickelson and daniel craig all together is you know great actors with a great director doing you know great material as far as a Hannibal Lecter movie so I feel like we're you know relatively even there but I also feel like people like me and people that aren't religious are just going to watch the movie and be like or you could choose option four which is none of them and probably would be a better I think, choice um, let's get to final points if you guys have anything else to address because I I I mean, you mentioned, oh, people who aren't religious are, are not going to like it. And it's like, what's well, a movie about religion? You're watching it because you want to engage with religion and think about religion. I'm not religious myself, but I would I like watching movies that engage with religion and talk about it as a, as a topic. You know, I think it's something that's fascinating as a, like, human philosophy. And mine engages that and examines, like, the mindset of a religious person or a priest who you might call, like, an abusive priest who would be not necessarily abusive to people, but abusive to himself and and dives into that mindset and explores that mindset. I think the Christmas Carol is that idea. Like you're exploring this rich kind of asshole and what makes him who he is and what's the driving force behind this guy and can he be cured and fixed. And I think I'm taking that idea and applying it to a different group, a different type of people who we call flawed. I think mine's very fascinating and I would love to see it. Yeah, I feel like mine is, you know, interesting. It's David Fincher doing a Hannibal Lecter movie, which is straight up in his wheelhouse. I feel like it's the type of movie where you think you're ahead of it with because you feel like, oh, you like obviously, oh, Daniel Craig's the killer, and then it's revealed Daniel Craig's the killer, and then at the end there's the final twist that, oh, uh, he's Hannibal Lecter's brother, and then with Hannibal Lecter getting away at the end is, is a fun, interesting twist for that movie. Right. Yeah, Bobby, do you have your mind made up? Yeah, and look, Tristan came with some really strong arguments, but then I think Joe fended him off pretty well um, and gave some really good, you know, threw some barb barbs right back. And I, I think that Joe, um, you know, Joe's movie to me still is a, is a stronger allegory. Tristan, made a, you made a good defense on making yours an allegory to me. But um, I think it was a little too on the nose, a little too religious-based to be an allegory where a lot of the goals of those movies are to bring someone in who may not be religious and and show them essentially a story of the bible told in a different way um and i think joe's does that really well and also is a to me a, just a little bit more of a movie that's in my wheelhouse to watch uh so that's where i'm going uh, i'm still sticking with joe yeah i i think um a couple things here i, I think joe 
trying to knock Tristan for being like a boring movie that people who aren't religious won't like or whatever. And, and I disagree. I think Tristan's movie sounds very interesting. It sounds like a lot like a first reform type of movie that I think is something that you can watch whether you're religious or not and, and find fascinating and a good delve into, you know, someone's mindset and questioning religion and, you know, their motivation behind what they do for a living and stuff like that. Um, so I like that aspect. Joe brought up a couple of good points of, you know, if you're remaking like a Christmas Carol in itself has a million different retellings, but Scrooge is the only one that I would say is like a straight up comedy. So if they yeah. did make like Tristan's movie and called it Scrooge, I think it would confuse people a little bit. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, Tristan tried to make the argument that you have to bring in Brian Fuller if you want Mads Mikkelsen in it. And while I agree that Brian Fuller's done a great job with Mads Mikkelsen's character in that show and everything, um, you know, we've seen countless examples of, you know, like aliens being taken over by James Cameron and, and maybe even being better than Alien, which was Ridley Scott, which was or still by great, Fincher. but... What? Fincher took Alien and killed it. Alien, <laughs> yeah. That was I feel like Alien... I feel I like Fincher is in a very different point in his career now than yeah. Yeah. when oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm always trying to make I think Joe hit on the head like this does sound like a Fincher movie. I think you can take the Mads Mikkelsen character and make a movie out of it and I think maybe giving a different voice to it would wait maybe widen the audience and maybe people see that and go back and revisit the show because as you know, we mentioned it was a show that was great but cancelled because it didn't have enough viewership and you give that to you know, you put the name Hannibal Lecter and um, David Fincher together, that maybe winds the appeal. But I do think my deciding factor at the end of the day, because I think both movies, again, sound really good, I would I would go see both. I think Joe just did a little better on the rule itself and made it an actual allegory rather than Tristan, which I understood some aspects of it, but actually having the religion in it, I think we can say Tristan could have tweaked his a little bit and made it an amazing like faith-based film if that was the rule. But I think Joe just, um, maybe more slightly than originally I thought, um, did a better job making an allegory. But this was another really close one. But I, I lean towards Joe. Yeah, and I would do say like Tristan's movie did sound really yeah. good. It, it's more of the I think that the rule, Joe just nailed it a lot more yeah. to me. That's that's what it came down to. I think the casts were both great. I love both director choices, um, and uh, and I just think Joe just one on the allegory aspect of it which you know that's that's what it comes down to that's the deciding factor that's uh that was a tough call and it is tough to compare different movies yeah. to each other with with this so you know it's interesting yeah. sitting in this seat this week you know yeah i mean i would see joe's movie day one so i can't really argue <laughs> i will say yeah. the one thing against like your movie is definitely like a taste like johnny's like oh that's like it reminded him of first reform and that's a positive i fucking hated first reforms and like that's partially what your movie yeah. reminded me of and i'm just like yeah i would like i would hate your movie not because it's bad just because it's not my type of movie yeah. at all i mean and i liked the two popes actually more than probably a lot of people that ended up actually watching it but i thought it was it's still <laughs> one yeah, i like you that, but when I wrote mine, yeah, I was, was like, "Okay, let's write this like first reforms." <laughs> so yeah, first I didn't, I didn't on my love mind it. as I wrote it. Yeah, yeah I didn't love it. Was, I, really I got big first reform vibes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yours sounds and like I the. Say, I ended up enjoying it, but the first two times I tried to watch first reformed, I fell asleep, and I had to watch it like completely wide awake in the middle of the day to get through it. And I, I liked it, but yeah, Tristan's movie does kind of sound like that. Like if I watched this in the, at the wrong time of day, it would it would maybe put me to sleep. Yeah. so I can picture the tone of it. 
um, like at Eternity's Gate, which I can never remember. That's the title of the uh, Van Gogh movie. But yeah, I, yeah that was that was uh, two good pitches again. So Tristan, I'm interested to see if you can earn uh, earn back your lead here. Oh, we got um, some live comments if you want. Actual... That from Paul, yeah, let's see from our boy Paul. Paul just said that I have a much better use of the rule, and then they don't see much allegory in Tristan's. All right, Paul. Hey, Paul. Whatever you say. Go watch Black Widow ten times in the theater. <laughs> you gotta stop taking shots at <laughs> We love you, Paul. You know we do. Yeah. Um, so I pitched a very serious and dry movie right there, so I'm gonna go with one that probably won't be, and it's gonna be the body swapping of Hell Jack yeah. Sparrow Let's and Bane. Go. Let's yes. do it. Let's go. I'm excited for this. I some energy into this podcast. Yeah, that, this was too, like, not not that our pitches were boring, but our movies were very, like, slow, like, yeah. methodical. Well, like, it was, that was the rule. It was <laughs> making religious allegories starring Matt Nicholson. If either of you came in with a goofy pitch, I would have been very confused by that. Yeah. So, um, who's going first? I'll go first. All right, I'm going to mm-hmm. go ahead and just get this one out of the way. <laughs> All right, Tristan, what... <laughs> I'm very curious because I don't know what movie fits oh, with this rule. There's one. What movie did you choose for this? I went with Over the Top for mine. Yeah. Terrible movie okay, choice. Okay. Why would you ever pick that and pair that <laughs> with this rule? Dumb idea. Yeah, get ready to not have to read one when I announce my movie. <laughs> for All me, right, uh, I'll go first. Wait, I, wait, wait, wait. wait, wait you got to get this plot because I think of like the, the plot being ridiculous, it's got to be, you got to know how, how bad this one is. Over the top. Um, it came out in 1987. It got a 33% of Rotten Tomatoes, which is criminally low or probably too high. Um, the director is Menahem Golan. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Sylvester Stallone as Lincoln Hawk, one of his most famous characters. <laughs> Over the top is a tale in which a truck driver with a lucrative sideline in arm wrestling <laughs> takes his estranged 12 year old son on the road after the boy's mother falls seriously ill that is in this movie about arm wrestling a whole cancer subplot (laughs) the trucker is beginning to reach out to the boy as the pair head to vegas for arm for the arm wrestling world championships but the lad's wealthy unfeeling grandfather sends his thugs to put a stop to the bonding and bring the boy back that, that, um, that movie exists it's great. Sylvester Stallone at one point lets his 12-year-old son drive his giant truck. Um, should definitely not have a session of this. You could definitely watch this movie and have the father that is supposed to be the bad guy be the hero of this movie. But, you know, that's another discussion. Also, go, going over the top, the actual move in arm wrestling is definitely illegal. But, 100%. Yeah. The, the, the basically, yeah, the whole plot comes down to an illegal arm wrestling move that wins the competition. So yeah. that's exciting. The karate can take um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It it, it took its it took yeah, it some to the space. To there. <laughs> <laughs> so Tristan, I am very curious to hear both of your pitches for the over the top, which could also be uh, this rule could be called over the top. So what do you got for us? I went with for my directors with Lord and Miller. I think they have experience with comedy and experience with franchise, uh, taking the piss out of franchises a little bit with their Lego movie stuff and worked on Lego Batman a bit too. So I think they have that kind of experience to really get into like the goofiness of these character interactions and give a lot of improv to these actors. 
for my Bane, I cast Dave Batista, who recently had some buzz going around, like, oh, he's gonna, he wants to be Bane in the DC. He's been tweeting about it. Zack Snyder talked about it a bit. It'd be kind of like a fun thing for him to do. And I have Johnny Depp playing Jack Sparrow. I feel like he, who else can play Jack Sparrow? And I feel like Johnny Depp's at the point where he needs to get back into movies. You know, he had an unfortunate kind of life problems going on, but I think he's coming back, and I think he's gonna. You know, this is the movie to bring him back. The Bane Jack Sparrow body swapping. Like, what can revive a career better than this? So when supervillain Felix Faust body swaps Bane and Jack Sparrow, the only way they can swap back is by winning an international road and water trip. They have to they have to go use an international road trip to go to the international supervillain arm wrestling competition in London, where Bane, who's now occupied by Jack Sparrow, will compete against a tournament lineup of villains to win back his true body. So we get a road trip kind of comedy with these body swap people. I had uh, international road trip and water trip because we're going to have some sailing with our Jack Sparrow in here. Uh, so we have some really fun road trip antics with these characters. Since Jack Sparrow is in the body of Bane, he's very elated to find out that despite being like four times his size, his alcohol tolerance is way lower. So he just has to drink a little bit and he's drunk. So he's elated. We see a drunk Bane the whole time. Jack's he's and he's always uh, drinking the whole time, pretty much. And you know, Jack's enjoying this because he doesn't have to drink whole entire buckets full of whiskey to get drunk now. And rum, rum sorry, sorry, rum. Of course, <laughs> Come that's on, the one. Yeah, I feel like it'd be really, really hilarious to see like the body and the and the voice of Bane drunk, like he's slurring with his Bane voice. And I think Dave Batista could pull off the comedy of that really well, kind of stumbling over his words, trying to fight people and all that. And uh, meanwhile, Bane, who's now in the body of Jack Sparrow, is going through a lot of alcohol withdrawal. So he's constantly trying to fight people, and he's used to being Bane, he's used to being big and indestructible. So he's, now he's Jack Sparrow, he's not exactly big, not exactly indestructible, so he's always getting beat up. You know, every time they stop somewhere, he's getting in a fight with somebody, getting his ass kicked. And He's used to being obviously the big, huge, buff Bane, so he's not used to getting his ass kicked. <laughs> so we get these kind of like two of these characters who we're used to seeing in certain ways are now in in different situations physically, and it's just I think that would be a really fun way to switch it. And like I said, you have you have uh, you go on water trip and road trip, so we gotta have some boat chasing scenes here where. Bane is the captain of a of a pirate ship. <laughs> I just feel like that ridiculous image is something that I wanted to have in my movie. You got Bane at the the head of a pirate ship. Uh, you know what else do you need? You got you got Captain Jack Sparrow. You got Bane on a road trip. One of them is drunk the whole time. The other one's getting in fights the whole time. It's it's comedy gold here. You know, it's a best picture winner, I think. And that's my pitch for Over the Top with uh, okay. Jack Sparrow and Bane. Tristan, really important question: How does Bane, well, I guess Jack Sparrow and Bane's body consume his alcohol. <laughs> you know, he has the things plugged into his mouth, so he just kind of like injects it into his, into his, his like a holes here, you know, and it just goes right up. Yep. It's like inhaling the alcohol. The perfect way to was, do it. Exactly what I was looking for. Rum. Just making the, yep, making the <laughs> venom into rum. Like, that's what I was looking for. All right. Joe? Also, my question Joe. is maybe I should wait till Joe pitches his. <laughs> Just wait. Uh, I, th I'll, I think all yeah, questions wait, should I, wait till yeah, the end. Mine was a funny question. Wait on legitimate questions. All right. Yeah, Joe, what do you got for us? All right. So I think I somehow, I don't know. My director is also I Lord and Miller, by the way. <laughs> yeah, do you see my dice, Joe? Wow. Wait, no. so we have two Lord and Miller 
uh, over-the-top movies with Jack Sparrow. And but my plot stuff. is yeah. relatively different, I'll say. So my movie opens with Jack Sparrow out sailing the seas on the Black Pearl when Aquaman riding a herd of whales comes through and attacks the boat, sinking it. Sparrow is able to float to an island and survive. The island is the headquarters of Bane and his minions. Jack Sparrow sees they have a plane headed for civilization and sneaks aboard as a stowaway. Through various interactions, we learn that this is a world very similar to that of like a Space Jam or a Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where these characters all exist together in the same universe. There is a war in this, there is a war in, in the world these characters live in between the Disney characters and the Warner Brothers characters. This war has been going on for decades, and there is no end in sight. Many don't even know what the war is about anymore. We see the Ancient One from Doctor Strange in the New York Sanctum hatch a plan. Uh, however, she knows she knows she needs to convince a member of the Warner Brothers side of her plan to end the war or it won't work. She makes a portal, walk through, and is inside Dumbledore's office in Hogwarts. Being a mischievous one himself, he agrees to her plan. They tell all of the characters on their side that it's time for the war to end, and they should do it via the most basic form of combat, an arm wrestling tournament. Whichever character wins, their side wins the war. All characters will competing, be competing in this massive tournament, However, just before the tournament begins, the Ancient One and Dumbledore initiate the next stage of their plan. Using magic, they force every character to switch bodies with a character on the other side. Our two leads, Captain Jack Sparrow and Bane, switch. We also have fun switches like Superman and Mickey Mouse, as well as Joker and Luke Skywalker. The last two to notice they've switched are Rick Deckard from Blade Runner and Han Solo. The switch causes pandemonium. Uh, the movie is just a lot of fun gags with a drunk hooligan Jack Sparrow and Bane's body and Bane going through withdrawals in Jack Sparrow's body and his anger that he isn't strong anymore. Uh, we see the characters and their swap counterpart work together to learn how to operate in each other's body. By the end of the movie, people are no longer rooting for their side to win because no one knows whose side is what. Is the Disney side the Disney brains or the Disney bodies? Everyone is just having fun and enjoying the tournament. However, when Bane and Jack Sparrow's body takes an early exit, he coaches Jack Sparrow and his body to the final round, where he has to face Pennywise and Hulk's body, who has been demolishing everybody. With Pennywise and Hulk's body, he turns into the Hulk when he puts fear into his opponent, not when he is angry. Since Jack Sparrow is an oblivious fool and has seen everything from one edge of the world to the other, he doesn't fear either Pennywise or the Hulk, and in Bane's body, he is able to defeat Bruce Banner and both sides celebrate and party together, and that is my pitch for Over the Top. It's a lot of plot for over the top. Joe, um, is your movie live action? Yeah, that was yeah. my question. Yeah, live action. Okay. Okay. Right. I, I just want, I was just like, who from Roger Rabbit and like Space Jam? Because all those characters are like yeah. exist in the world and recognize well, their characters. But then you also had the swap of Joker and Luke Skywalker, and I was picturing Mark Hamill as both of those characters. That's why I was wondering yeah. that too. Yeah. Um,. Okay. I'm very, I'm pretty, I'm leaning a direction. I have, I have one, I have one question, but I don't think I need to hear a fight. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't either. Tristan, how do Bane and Jack Sparrow switch bodies in your movie? That was uh, I mentioned that Felix Faust is, is a DC villain who can cause body swapping. So I have him be like the MacGuffin that causes them to swap bodies. All right. Yeah. I would have liked it to have been because I got very excited by your pitch. I would like it to be Jack Sparrow steals some treasure that causes him to switch bodies or something or has magical powers that he doesn't know. 
and challenge Bane before having to walk the plank to an arm wrestling fight. And when he touches his hand, they switch bodies. And then Jack Sparrow wins because he's now in Bane. Um, but he's like, oh, I've taken over his body. But then the two have to work together. I, I pictured that. But I will say this. Um, I'm making the final decision. Bobby, do you need to hear a fight at all? I, I don't. I think one person, and I think we're in the same direction, blew it out of the water for this one. I agree. Um, and and that person was Tristan. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Um, Joe, if you made yours a Lego movie, I would have had you two fight because it would have been very close at that point. If this was, If yours was the Lego movie version of what you pitched and everything was animated and you could do Mark Hamill doing the voice of both the Joker and Luke Skywalker and Harrison Ford doing the voice of both, like I think it just would make more sense. Um, your movie didn't make any sense to me. I would watch it and just be like... Uh, I basically was like, let's time. make the weirdest possible fucking movie I can. That was my strategy. You, you got did. your expectations too. But the thing is, Tristan because made it weird but had great character stuff in it for sure. So. I Tristan... It would have been hard to be Tristan when he described Dave Bautista as being acting like Jack Sparrow. I think yeah. it would have been extremely funny. Um, and, and I just think that kind of won me over at the end of the day because I love Dave Bautista and I think his best aspect is comedy. And I would love big Bane Dave Bautista acting like Jack Sparrow would be super entertaining. So I think that wins me over at the end of the day. Joe, I asked if yours was live action because I was hoping you would just change it up and maybe go Lego type movie, especially with Lord and Miller as your directors. I think that would have been a better uh, way to go, especially with all the properties you have. It would have made sense because Lego probably owns the rights to every single one of those properties. So, especially having like Harry Potter and all that in there. So, at the end of the day, I think Tristan won that bizarre one, but um, he made yeah. a movie that I would be excited to see. Yeah, it, it's a little unfortunate that we didn't get to hear the fights on this one, but honestly, it would have been a waste of time, I think. Yeah. So, I think it was more yeah. just concept versus like character yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so too. I, I think at the end of the day, like, if we did a five-minute fight, nothing would have changed my mind, and I don't yeah. want to put you guys through a fight yeah. that isn't going to affect yeah. either judge's outcome. So Tristan takes back the lead. We have our third lead change today. Joe, what do you got for us? What's next? Let's do a mom movie. All right. All right. A movie made just for moms. Who's going first? Uh, I'll go first this time. And I gotta remember. Oh, I did uh, Weekend at Bernie's. Interesting. Really? All right. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, Weekend at Bernie's came out in 1989. It got a 54% around tomatoes, um, which is funny because I think it's known as more of a classic and it maybe isn't as, doesn't hold up maybe as well. Rotten Tomatoes on some of those older movies aren't always as, you know. As, yeah, as, but I also think if you watch Weekend at Bernie's now, you're like, I think yeah. maybe it's more iconic for the plot rather than the actual yeah. movie itself. Probably. Um, the director is Ted uh, Kotcheff. Um, so, fun-loving Richard, played by Jonathan Silverman, and Larry, played by Andrew McCarthy, are invited by their boss, Bernie, played by Terry Kaiser, to stay the weekend at his posh beach house. Little do they know that Bernie is the perpetrator of a fraud um, they've uncovered uh, and is arranging to have them killed. When the plan backfires and Bernie is killed himself, the buddies decide not to let a little death spoil their vacation. They pretend Bernie is still alive, leading to hijinks and corpse desecration galore. 
and I'm interested to see how this movie got made for moms. <laughs> so let's hear it. All right, so my writer-director is Tina Fey, because I want to go more for, like, that Bad Moms, Bridesmaids vibe, and I feel like this would be, like, a good directorial kind of debut for her. We've seen, like, her writing work, so I think this kind of fits in the wheelhouse of what I'm going for. Um, my role of Mary will be played by Tracy Ellis Ross. Uh, she is uh, on the show Blackish. My Ricky will be played by Jennifer Aniston. Uh, she was on Friends, Moms Love Her. And then um, the role of Bernie in my movie will be played by Chris Hemsworth, uh, who's, you know, has shown to be really good in comedies and he's attractive, moms like him. So uh, here's my plot. Bernie is a film producer who took over his father's production company when he died. Mary is his receptionist and Ricky is his secretary. Bernie is a dick who forces his employees to work late and miss their kids' games and recitals. He is also a misogynist who cheats on his actress girlfriend. The weekend of their movie's big premiere, Bernie has Ricky and Mary make over his mansion in Malibu in preparation for the premiere after party. While moving his laptop, they see an email that they are being fired and replaced with two Instagram models the day after the party. He shows up later that night drunk. They confront him and he says it's true. They are old and boring and he wants to make the company hot and fun. Later that night, they see him in his room passed out on alcohol and pills. The two of them want to prove they are hot and fun, and the whole movie is essentially like a three-day party movie made for moms. There are cameos with heartthrobs for moms of all ages. We got Donnie Osmond, Brad Pitt, Christian Slater, Devin Sawa, and Jason Priestley. Uh, there's a scene where Mary and Ricky sing karaoke with Elton John, as well as famous direct. You know, and we have cameos with famous directors and producers like Steven Spielberg and Olivia Wilde. Uh, midway through the movie, they realize he is no longer passed out but dead. You know, after they prop him up, after they have propped him up in various locations, and he still hasn't woken up, they try to figure out what to do with him. But they are too drunk. At the end of the weekend party, the cops are called. They, the cops find Bernie's body, but the women aren't blamed at all. Without their jobs, they don't know what to do. However, there is a thing throughout the movie where they say to be successful in Hollywood, you need to have connections, and they've been stuck behind desks their whole career and have been nameless, faceless nobodies until they realize they have spent the weekend making friends with big Hollywood names and decide to start an agency for forgotten stars. And that is my pitch for Weekend at Bernie's. Okay. Interesting. Kristen, what do you got? I went with a different movie. I went with one that Joe already uh, brought up, and it's Say Anything. Is my mic still picking up some noise? I moved it over a little bit, but... Yeah, yeah I, it, it's... It's uh, not as much when you talk, now. Right, when you talk, it's not as much. It was, I think it was... Uh, if, if it's adding, like, an auto-adjust volume, I think it's trying to pick up something that's quiet in there. I'll work on that a little bit. Uh, I'll go through my pitch before I do that. <laughs> uh, for my Say Anything, I went with my director of Greta Gerwig. She did Little Woman and Labor, which I think are both really big, like kind of like mom-appealing movies. I know my mom... She barely ever sees movies, but she saw both of those in the theater when they came out. And my Lloyd, the lead, uh, love, the main guy love interest is Timothy Calame. He worked with Greta Gerwig before, and I know a lot of moms kind of like him as like this young, kind of uh, new up and coming kind of cute guy. And my uh, woman love interest Diane is played by Emma Watson, who also worked with Greta Gerwig in the past. Uh, Diane's mom is Kate Winslet. I think she has that kind of like old Hollywood appeal that moms kind of go for. And she's also the lead of Mayor of Easttown, which is this really uh, interesting HBO detective show. It's not necessarily great, but it's one that I think really appeals to, to parents. My parents both watch it and they're really into it. Uh, 
Diane's dad is played by Bradley Cooper. He's got that hot guy appeal, you know, that moms always like. And uh, I also have Lloyd's grandfather, the one that he's living with, is played by George Clooney, who's also very hot. And I think he has that, like, old school kind of hotness, too, where it's like you have both generations of, like, this classic Hollywood George Clooney guy. And I kind of went into the similar uh, tone of the original Say Anything, where it's this heartfelt romance that has this kind of dose of reality to it which I think moms would really get into. They have this kind of like love story there, but also since moms are a bit older, they have a little bit of a reality to it where they, they realize that these youthful romance things aren't necessarily like 100% guaranteed to be perfect. So I have two recent graduates who are a bit lost in life similar to the original and they find solace in each other when they both learn to kind of grow and better themselves after they have moved on from school and are trying to figure out adulthood it's a romantic comedy for moms who are nostalgic for their kind of youthful love, like that first love, you know, you look back and you're like remembering all oh, that first time I really fell in love and how much that really meant and how much that felt. And you also get the heartthrobs, you get the people like Brad Pitt, I mean, uh, George Clooney, Bradley Cooper, and you also get Timothy Calamay and Emma Watson, which I think has like a cross-generational feel. I know moms would be into seeing a movie with their daughters. So I think this is something that they could bring up with their daughters, be like, oh, I saw that new Timothy Calamay, the new Emma Watson movie, and something they would even go see together is like a mom-daughter kind of night. I know moms pretty much exclusively are the ones who went out and saw Little Women. <laughs> so I went with Greta Gerwig on that one because I know she has this mom appeal, and she also has some comedy and romance experience in her other work, whether it's in writing or acting or directing. She's done a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, and I tried to mix in younger people to have that cross-generational appeal. And I got a little bit of the the appeal of the original too, where you have like an average kind of guy, but he's successful. And you have the kind of like anxious, but unfulfilled girly, a little bit of like a role reversal, which is what made the original so interesting in the first place. And I wanna bring up my reference to the boombox scene. I know Joe mentioned his, and since mine is modern, I wanna kind of bring in some mom jokes where they comment on a little bit on like modern technology. So towards the end of the movie, uh, they're, it's similar at least plot to the original where the, the parents of Diane are not really into this guy that she's hanging out with. They're saying, oh, he's he's a slacker or whatever. He's not good for you. He's bringing out the worst in you. And they learn and they she essentially tell her like, oh, you can't see him again towards the end. They have this breakup moment and she's sitting in her house. And earlier in the movie, uh, they when they're hanging out, you know, they have their songs they're playing together. They're playing them off her speakers in her bedroom. And they have their one special song they love so much. And she's sitting there in her bed kind of like sad forlorn that this guy is uh not with her anymore that her parents broke them up and then her bluetooth speakers turn on and it starts playing their music and she looks out the window and he's standing there holding up his cell phone similar to the shot from the boombox of the original but he's saying look i still i still have your bluetooth speaker saved i still have our song saved and it's essentially his moment of calling her back bringing her back to him and they have this ending similar to the ending of the graduate a bit where they run off together and they're, they're decided to have their life together, but you have this little hanging thought over your head. Like sure, the good guys win, they get together at the end, but you have this little tiny dose of reality that maybe it's too romantic to be true. Maybe it's not quite what you think it's gonna be. You know, the tone of maybe like before sunset, where it's like, or before sunrise, I'm sorry, where you're like, oh, you know, maybe they will get together, maybe they won't. But you have that romantic edge where the moms wanna believe they will, you know? So I went for that mom romantic comedy kind of vibe with my say anything and there's my pitch for that. Okay. Um, I think you both nailed certain aspects of my movies for sure. Joe going more straight up comedy and Tristan going more, I'd say more romance 
uh, centered rom-com. Um, but, uh, wait, so Tristan, what type of music is in your movie? Like what mu- music do they make or, or is the, the stuff on the boom box and all that? What style at least, if you don't have particular I'm gonna songs? I'm going to have them be into eighties music. I think that's like a big thing that's in right now. Eighties nostalgia is still kind of a big thing. And I think you're bringing the eighties music that I think moms would remember from there when they were in this age, when they were in that kind of hopeful youth. So I think you have them playing the 80s stuff as a, both a throwback to the original and also just like a nostalgia trip for the moms. There's some mom movies, so you want to get their music in there, you know? Go ahead, Betty Davis eyes in there. Yeah, there you go. Um, all right, Bobby, do you have any questions? Because this is the one we are uh, judging together. Yeah, I mean, that, that was my question for, for Tristan. Um, I understand Joe's. I don't really have any questions. I just need to hear more from arguments. Um, I'm leaning kind of a certain way, but it's pretty split right now. I, I think it's interesting because I can picture the mic is good, Tristan. Um, yeah, much better. I I think Joe might have leaned closer to younger moms, especially going towards the like bad moms type of vibe, and Tristan went more towards like maybe our mom's generation and going very 80s with it and throwbacks to old school rom-coms and you know but then I feel like his maybe sort of ambiguous ending doesn't really work with the rest of his movie so I'm kind of split just because I think both you have some good aspects and then other aspects that maybe go against what you were going for with the uh, type of the type of mom that you were pitching your movie towards so um, I'm interested to just hear you guys fight. Uh, you have until 8.25 to convince, sorry, convince us. The reason that I went with an ambiguous ending is you want to have that little tiny tinge of, of heartstring pulling at the end, you know, where like they're, they're together, they're happy together, but you have that little like tragic romance to it where you're like, ooh, maybe, maybe, but you, you really do believe. I, and I made it sound a bit more ambiguous maybe than I intended, but they're definitely together, they're definitely set to be together. But there's less this little hint of maybe they're too young and maybe this or that, but maybe but I really do want the audience to be believing in that couple by the end and believing that they're gonna be together. S- same way you did towards the end of before uh before sunrise where you're like, Oh, these people have this romantic view of the world, but they're gonna be together. You kinda wanna believe in them, you have the romantic belief that they're gonna they're gonna end up together. I feel like what my big negative against Tristan is I feel like it's like for a very like specific type of like mom audience where I tried to go mine more like broad and get moms from various different generations. That's why I tried to have like various like cameos in my movie to have like heartthrobs and stuff from different generations. And I specifically chose Jennifer Aniston from Friends who, I mean, obviously she's done things outside of Friends, but that show has been around and on reruns for so long that moms of different generations like connect with her and are fans of her so i feel like you know different different types of moms from like you know new moms in their early 20s to moms that watch friends with it initially ran who were like in their late 40s or 50s now uh are still fans of hers and i feel like and i feel like my type of movie and my plot is like a more of just like a fun that's kind of how i pictured my movie it's just just like a bunch of women going together for like a fun night of going to going to the movies is kind of my thought process with hers with mine. you mentioned that you think uh, yours has cross-generational appeal i just don't think it does it sounds like a really raunchy kind of r-rated comedy where a lot of drinking a lot of partying a lot of sex jokes and 
That works for some moms, but I know my mom for sure would never in a million years watch that kind of movie. She's not going to watch a movie where it's really R-rated, it's really raunchy, they're really going for the hardcore jokes there, and I just don't think that appeals to some moms, sure, but I don't think it has, like, the broad mom appeal that you think it does. See, I, w- I wouldn't say mine's more raunchy. Mine's more, I would pit- picture mine more as, like, this revenge movie against their, like, crappy boss of, like, they're basically proved that they're not fun and they want to show that they're fun, but it's not necessarily, like, the raunchy and, like, sex jokes type of thing. I mean, maybe, but your pitch sounds like it is. There's a lot of drinking, a lot of partying, a lot of that kind of stuff. Feels I mean, like but it's still more of, like, movie. a Hollywood, like, movie premiere after party. It's not, like, a college frat party. I just don't think your tone fits for the mom movie. I tried to make mine an easy watch, you know, something that moms could watch and not feel like they're offending anyone but they're still getting a little bit of the you know it has the romance angle it has the kind of like young love angle where they feel like a little bit of the rebelliousness there but it's not like they're watching something that they feel like they shouldn't watch they're not watching something that is raunchy i know a ton of moms would not be into your movie i know that for a fact and my i know that my mom would like my movie a lot she would be into that a lot and I, yeah, where I feel I like my mom, mom like... who hates rom-coms would like not care about your movie at all and I also don't know like what other than like the bluetooth connecting scene which I almost you know I don't know really what your movie brings new to the table that's not in the original uh say anything which well, I almost I mean, feel my... like it's more of like a scene you would see in like a commercial for bluetooth than like a movie that's a reboot for say anything I think mine is definitely a reboot to say anything it has the same themes to say anything where well, i'm not it's saying like the... it's not a reboot i just don't know like what it's bringing like new that's not... it just felt like you like recast it say anything and then had the bluetooth scene like i don't know mine brings a new i mean greta gerwig has a modern perspective it has a modern cast it has like a modern perspective on this i think i took the the plot of say anything and i modernized it that's the that's the game of the show i mean I, it's a remake of say anything sure it has yeah. the similar plot beats but that's what the show is you're remaking i'm remaking movie i didn't throw out the entire plot and make my own thing like i made a movie that was based off say anything and modernized it and set it in the modern world with modern actors and modern problems and modern themes you know and especially like you have this in the current generation you have people who are graduating from college and are and are yeah. getting into the workforce that's not rewarding them and I think moms are seeing their kids have to deal with that and I think that's a very modern problem something that wasn't addressed that much in the original and something that is part of the modern day lexicon like these people that are graduating from college with degrees and then they're working at like you know gas stations they're working nowhere and but I feel like again that's that's more of like a connection like sure like moms see like their kids going through it but I feel like that's more of like a movie that would appeal more to kids than to moms of just like the things they're going through that's like why I said, when I, I went through this... my movie of like the things moms could connect to of feeling like they're being replaced or feeling like, you know, they, you know, their boss like firing them because they're getting too old or something like that, that I feel like moms could connect to. And I think moms could connect to the nostalgia, like the angst of looking back at their youth and looking back at this kind of hopeful romance that they had, but they can also connect to their parents. They can connect to that kind of adult, real, uh, realist kind of perspective. And you have the arc where the dad and the mom kind of come around on this relationship a bit and not all the way around but like they start to see themselves in those characters a little bit and I think that's something that moms can connect to where they're they've grown up they've kind of lost their sight of the romantic kind of view of youthfulness that they used to have and this can be a, something that kind of reconnects them with their youthful romantic energy when they were young and throws them back to when they were in that era without making it set in that era you know it's still a modern movie that can connect them with the current generation of kids but it deals with themes that they can relate to themes of 
growing up and losing that sense of romanticism that the parents are experiencing in this movie. You know, but for my movie, I was more just going for like the fun type of movie, like a Bad Moms or something that I feel like would be more, you know, compelling or entertaining. Of just like we're gonna get a group together, we're gonna go see this movie. I don't know if moms are like out to be like, oh, I'm just gonna see say anything that's like slightly modernized. I tried to be like, here's a, you know, here's a weekend at Bernie's that's more of like a more connected to mom ideas of what they're personally going through so is yours not raunchy or is yours like is yours like bad moms because you're saying it's not raunchy and then you're saying oh it's like bad moms who's a raunchy well movie. i mean i feel like there's a, it's not like i'm more saying it's not like american pie type of thing where it can be like slightly toned down to a degree so right. it still sounds like it's raunchy to me i think after much debate over text messaging yeah. Bobby and I might have our decision. Yeah, this, this was very close. This was the closest fight. I'm going to be honest. This was close because it, I leaned towards Tristan and Bobby leaned towards Joe, and we had to kind of, in a way, argue over what movie uh, maybe fit towards moms better. And we're basing that obviously on our mom, but also, you know, just moms in general and what we think it is, is more appealing. So, um, I don't know. Bobby. What did, what did you think? What did you kind of end up uh, agreeing with or uh, uh, thinking was better? So again, it was very split. Like even I'm going to make my arguments, but it's not bashing the other one for sure. Um, I just think that Tristan's felt a little bit too much on like the indie side, especially with Greta Gerwig and even like her Little Women. When I went, like I saw that with with my wife and she liked it a lot, but that that still didn't feel like so much of a mom movie that like as far as the romantic comedy that you're kind of going for and joe's i think nailed more of the fun going kind of moms get together either with other moms or with with a daughter or with a daughter-in-law or whatever and go out and see that movie and have fun it's not too raunchy like our mom loves like even shameless which is pretty raunchy but like most comedies if it falls a little below that she enjoys it you have i think some actors that i think really would appeal to her in it um too so I was leaning Joe, uh, Johnny. I know we were talking, and I think I know where you landed on it. But um, what, what were your final thoughts after all the arguments? I think my final thoughts, which which Joe backed up in his arguments, um, Joe pitched with his cast and director. I think a better mom movie. Tristan's actual story. When I first heard it, his pitch I think was a better mom movie because moms love romance and and joe's doesn't really have that aspect and tristan's does but bobby bringing up the point of it feeling more like an indie movie and i disagree that like ladybird i haven't seen little women but i don't think ladybird is a mom movie because the whole movie is a daughter being rebellious and fighting against her mom and i i don't necessarily and then there are think that's coming together and connecting movie. and i think like if you think kind of but like even at the end of that movie my other thing with it is this my main thing with it is this I think Tristan made a very good coming of age movie but I don't think mm -hmm. coming of age movies are for moms because they've already come of age and I think Joe's is like Bobby said maybe one that moms would get together and go see and laugh at and think is funny I think Tina Fey was a good choice mm -hmm. um, over Greta Gerwig and it, while it was close and I was really leaning towards Tristan when they first did the pitch through Joe's fight um and just thinking more about it and kind of assessing it while I thought maybe the death was a little too dark and stuff, Joe pitched it as 
semi-raunchy, but not over the top, not like a super bad type movie, but like, or like a Bad Moms, which basically is like a PG-13 movie at the end of the day, like with some cuss words. Like, I, I, I think at the end of the day, Joe pitched a movie that at least what we can go on the most is based on our mom. I think, uh, I think maybe works better for her, even though Tristan, I think pitched a movie that based on what he said is better maybe for his own mom. So this is obviously a tough rule because yeah. everyone has different aspects of what moms might like. But I think, I think Joe's hit more of, um, at the, with the arguments, I think Joe ended up convincing me more that his was more for moms of all ages. And Tristan actually, was more for moms either that wanted throwback movies or were younger and still wanted coming of age. But it sounded more like it was moms that maybe aren't as happy in their marriages now, <laughs> honestly, and looking back and being like, oh, my young romantic life. And Joe's was like, moms can go have fun and watch this and not think about that. So I think that kind of is where my side effect came in. Um, but again, yeah, you guys really close. close. Really, really all. close. This yeah. has been one of the closest fights we've had in a while. And I think it is representative of that, that it is two to two um, going into our fifth uh, fight. I don't know if this will make me lose my point, but I feel like the difference between my, I mean, number one, I feel like the big negative, not negative, but like the hardest part about this one is like mom movies aren't nearly as defined as dad movies. Like when you know, like you hear dad movie, at least the four of us, yeah. as much as we talk, we know. And I feel like the difference between mine and Tristan is I feel like every mom that sees my movie would be like, yeah, that's like a B minus movie. And the moms that yeah, like are wrong. into Tristan's type of movie would be like, that's an A type movie. But I feel like very, but that's like a lot more like a limited group of people yeah they're gonna love or hate tristan's and yours is gonna be more of an enjoyable no matter what they what happens yeah look most pounds wouldn't even watch joe's so i guess we can move on to the next one (laughs) i don't i don't know if that's right though i I, I think based on our moms don't watch i never movies i don't think so i think yeah our mom is like the last person i'd ever imagined to watch anything like that and then she found shameless and loved it and now has kind of expanded what she watches as far as like more of the raunchy stuff so i I understand it and joe's wasn't like it's borat like it's not like a movie that's so over the top raunchy that someone's not gonna like like bad moms if you've seen it like it's not even like bridesmaids level not even close to like that level of raunchy it's like i got where he was going and i i can see that being a movie that literally the theater is full of moms and Tristan's would be more of a date movie and maybe the yeah. moms liked, but there'd still be a lot of dads, and maybe some kids in the audience and Tristan and Joe's literally sounded like 90% of the audience mm-hmm. would only be moms and no one else would be interested in it. So yeah. that's kind of what I, I think Tristan's in a way maybe made his a little too good to be just for moms <laughs> and Joe will stuck with being just for moms. Yeah. Hey, whatever works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, my mom's favorite movie is Overboard, so that, you know, <laughs> that's... I basically that's had my concept written it. out, and then when you guys were, we were talking, all four of us were talking last week, and me and Tristan were like, okay, you, you wanted to base this off what your mom likes, but, like, what is your mom like? And you were like, well, she likes Overboard, and she liked Nobody. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to stick with my concept then, because... Yeah, our mom yeah. likes Nobody. What the fuck? Like, well, mom, because I, she, I she's surprised So, oh, that makes sense. So, just as yeah, a quick aside, as a quick... Yeah, gotta, Taken. Yeah, yeah so well johnny peas um yeah my mom our mom loves any movie where someone that is a bad guy for especially like you know taking a daughter or any of that type of stuff is just killed in whatever way possible like those revenge movies as far as action movies goes that she that's what she would like 
Yeah, and then um, you and saw. Then... Yeah, you said something too. If she likes like when the good guy wins at the end, so I just yeah. basically tagged on the end of my concept. Oh, they make a they make a production or agency yeah. for like Forgotten Stars. So right, like happy end. endings yeah. and all that. Yeah, for sure, definitely not. Um, like she like might getting together at the end. Yeah, no, but again, it, it was like it was another close fight. It's not like yours was. I thought your I thought your I movie thought it might have been really toast. Good, but I was like, Ugh. yeah. I don't know it's, it just go. came down to I we we broadened it to like okay I think Joe's is more of a mom movie and doesn't and it's not like you made a mom movie that was like a bad movie it actually it sounds entertaining yeah. and, and Tristan sounds like a, a good movie that would be for a, a wider audience I would say yeah my, my concept was like a movie that moms and daughters could go see together yeah and that, that, I think that was also like a hundred percent mom movie yeah, I think that was like the harder part for judging where you were like okay I'm gonna make like a good like mom and daughter. like basically our entire approach to this role was very different yeah yep for sure this was a tough one but we wanted to kind of counter the dad movie thing without yeah. sticking you into a random universe yeah. fuckers um anyway uh so that ties it up and that means Tristan is picking our next role uh and I'm excited to see where he goes because there's Two left that I'm super excited for, and then there's one of them. <laughs> yeah, and there's also another one. <laughs> yeah, and then, then another one. Is... Maybe me and me and Joe can subconsciously decide what order we're gonna go in on these ones because or, or, or just figure get, it out right now. I, one... I, I don't really give a shit. I, there's one I kind of want to just get out of the way. I'll say. Yeah, I feel like also I want to get that one out of the way. So let's go with Doctor Doolittle. Yep. <laughs> I think that's a good one to do while it's tied because I would hate that to be the deciding factor. I'm okay with yeah. Match. Yeah. I'll go first on this one. I gotta figure out what movie I paired with it. <laughs> All right. Do you have any pictures now? <laughs> I'll go with right. the one that Joe just ruined in this weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> oh, you already All read right. the description, so I'll just go. Well, you've read the description, so let's hear your Doctor Doolittle weekend at Bernie's movie. <laughs> So my director, I did uh, Nicholas Stoller, who did Neighbors, which I really liked a lot, and he also did the Netflix show Friends from College, which was pretty good too. Uh, he has a lot of comedy experience, so I went with him on this one, and really like, kind of dark, kind of almost raunchier kind of comedy stuff. So I, that's the kind of tone I'm going for with this. So my pitch is that when they're invited to their asshole boss's birthday party for his show dog at his large home, uh, the boss is played by Bob Odenkirk, uh, they're low-level employees. Larry, uh, played by Charlie Day, he's an act-first-think-later kind of person who spends his days getting high and talking to his pet parrot. Uh, and then there's also Richard, who's kind of an anxious, by-the-numbers accountant who wants to do everything the right-and-straight-arrow kind of way. He wants to climb the ladder and do everything correctly, and that's played by Danny Putty from uh, Community. He played Abed on that show. He was really great on that show. I think he uh, could shine in this kind of a role. I think him and Charlie Day could have that kind of dynamic between the two of them. They could play off each other really well. Charlie Day is like a high energy kind of person, and Danny Putty in this is a lot, lot more like an anxious kind of tight wound type. Uh, and they think this is the chance for maybe having their big break. So Richard warns Larry, because like I said, Larry's kind of like the the more uh, wild card of the group. He says, uh, "We got to really take this seriously. This is a serious event. This can be our career make or break kind of moment." So Larry promises to behave, but secretly he brings along chocolate edibles to the party because he's going to get high for this uh, really ridiculous party with a bunch of rich people at this uh, estate. Uh, things are going pretty well. They're getting along well with their boss. They're getting along well with like his rich kind of cohorts. 
up there, but things go wrong when the dog eats uh, Larry's chocolate edible, chokes, and dies. And now the dog is dead, so Richard and Larry are panicking, and they have to, they decide they're going to fake this dog as being alive and put on a show as this fake uh, dog. And thankfully, like I said, Larry spends his days talking to his parrot, similar to Dr. Doolittle. In Dr. Doolittle's original origin, he learned to talk to animals by talking to his parrot. So uh, since they, uh, it's the dog's birthday, the show dog's birthday party, and they learn that their boss is kind of like a dog breeder. He has a bunch of dogs at his big estate, and all his rich people are bringing over their, their pets as well. So Larry can talk to the animals, so he's working along with these dogs to try and fake this show with this dog that they accidentally killed with the chocolate <laughs> and uh, of course uh, by the end they realize that the, since the boss is breeding all these dogs and they're talking with the dogs, the dogs are not happy with this kind of life of being bred by the boss so Larry and Richard they free the breeded dogs at the end and they uh, so we have a lot of like ridiculous physical comedy. I went a lot darker with it so I brought in, that's why I brought in my director I think can really manage this kind of ridiculous tone of this dead dog movie and I, I I knew it was gonna be a dark twist so I went with like the rich asshole and like his his preppy show dog you know since you can talk to the dogs you get to the fact that this show dog that dies like an asshole dog he's like a high he thinks himself being like the best dog in the whole block he's always mean to the rest of the dogs so you don't feel necessarily too bad for this dickhead dog that gets killed and that's basically my comedy it's a really really dark comedy with the uh, you know you got Charlie Day you got Danny Putty and you got a dead dog oh, okay. well well I'm horrified <laughs> um, <laughs> I think for a dead dog movie you should have went with uh, Wes Anderson as your director yeah to do that in the movies <laughs> huh. alright well that was a direction um I, okay Joe I have a feeling you guys might have matched up on movies no no we did not we did not no not, not I, I, we already yeah. did my movie but it ain't his movie because yeah already i just did we got right, bernie's what is it so my movie is scrooged okay that's the one i'm like well doc, they fucking okay yeah. there we go so let's hear it my director is jake Kasdan, who is known for doing the two recent jumanji movies uh my frank cross is going to be played by uh, Jack Black. His assistant is going to be played by Taraji P. Henson. Her son is going to be played by Lonnie Chavis, who is on um, uh, This Is Us. Then I'm going to have a dog voiced by Ed Asner, uh, a turtle voiced by The Rock, a cat voiced by Wanda Sykes, and a horse voiced by Nick Jonas. So uh, Frank Cross is a television veterinarian who helps people with their sick pets and gives tips. However, he has become a Dr. Oz type who cares more about money than the animals. His assistant's son says to Frank that his mom said he's ready for a pet and which kind should he get. Frank blows him off saying pets are a waste of time. While filming his Christmas special episode, he slips on a spot that a cat peed, hits his head, and yells at the cat owner. As the owner and cat walk away... Frank hears the owner talk back, and Frank says something to her, but the owner is confused, saying she never said anything. Not feeling well, Frank decides to head home early. His driver sees a sick stray dog on the side of the road and asks Frank if he wants to stop and help it, and Frank says no. 
Later that day, the same dog he drove past visits him, saying he will be visited that night by three animals that need his help. Frank is confused by the talking animal and shuts the door in his face, thinking it's a dream. That night, a sick turtle shows up, which is the same as the first pet Frank ever had when he was a kid. We get a flashback of a young Frank with his first pet, which is where his love of animals began. Next, we get a cat, the same cat that Frank, Frank slipped in its pee. Uh, Frank didn't really offer anything helpful to the cat's owner and said it was probably just the cat's diet of why it was acting weird. Uh, the cat is actually pregnant and Frank helps deliver the kittens in his kitchen and we start to see his warm and caring side. Uh, finally, we, get, we see a young horse who was bought as a colt by owners who didn't know what they were doing and it's hungry. A horse was always Frank's dream pet that he always saw himself having in the future when he was a kid, but he got too consumed by his work and never actually got one. The horse is starving and Frank feeds him some carrots, which makes the horse immediately feel better. Uh, Frank calls his producer and tells him he wants to refilm the Christmas special. He wants to get back to the studio and rework it as fa rework, start reworking it as fast as possible. So he hops on the horse and rides it back to the studio and we see him refilm the special the next day, offering real advice and actually helping animals. The assistant's son is there again and Frank asks if he thought about getting a kitten because there was a cat that had just had kittens at his house and he wondered if he would want one when it's old enough to be away from its mother. The kid says yes and that's kind of my pitch. Good pitch, Joe. Thanks. I didn't have a dead dog in my movie, so that's something. <laughs> yeah. Something. Um, um. <laughs> this, this might be close for different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every, I feel like every pitch has been like, yeah, they've both done so well. And, you know, this was a hard rule to make uh, yeah, a for sure. movie out of, so I don't know where... I don't know if I have any questions. Do you have I'm, any questions, Bobby? I'm super happy. I'm the final judge on this one. <laughs> yeah, you um, are. No, honestly, look, it was a hard rule. Tristan's as horrifying as the concept may be um, is a direction, and it's bold, and Joe's is a little sounds a little bit more safe. Um, so I guess I just need to hear you fight it. I don't have specific questions on it. But, I have one yeah, question have one. for Tristan because I need this clarified, actually. In the original Weekend at Bernie's, they fake the guy's death by putting him in a wheelchair and giving him sunglasses. How are they going to fake a dog's death on a... Like, how are they going to fake the dog being alive, is my question. They have a whole, like, contraption, really like a question. puppetry contraption, and since they're working with all the other animals around them, they're able to, like, coordinate this and, and like, use the other animals to distract them so they can run out and kind of move the dog. Like, maybe you have, the like, a huge, like, golden retriever-sized dog, and it comes out and barks and pees all over the ground, and the whole guests, like, turn around, like, oh, my God, what is that? And that gives the two characters a chance to run in and maybe move something around and do something with the dog to move it around. You know, you just have ways that it can coordinate with the other animals on this ranch in order to sort of distract the guests in, in a lot of ways to... And I think that what I liked about Weekend at Bernie's, it wasn't much like about it, but I think they kind of commented on like these superficial relationships with these rich people where it's like they don't really... They don't care about Bernie so much that they don't even notice that he's dead. So I want it to be like these people in this like rich, bougie, show dog kind of world, they don't care. They care so little they're not even paying attention enough to notice that this dog is dead. They're just like so absorbed in themselves and their own drama that they're not even noticing. So I wanted to go pretty ridiculous and dark with mine. Look, you got a ridiculous movie, a ridiculous, ridiculous rule. I think it goes together. I I maybe don't disagree. Um, 
All right, so fight it out. Yeah. Um, you got you got five minutes, uh, and then Bobby has to make the final decision. I'm very happy that I don't. Yeah, I feel like with mine, one of the things I didn't really get to in my pitch, but I wanted to more just like save for the arguments because I didn't want to type like three pages. Was I feel like a lot of my comedy is more just like harder to write into the pitch because I feel like a lot of it's just Jack Black reacting to the fact that like animals are talking to him that he didn't, you know, he, and it's kind of him number one warming up to that idea and trying to figure it out and him uh, realizing he can talk to animals and that whole aspect. And, but, you know, I didn't want to write all... So there's, like, those comedic elements into that movie. I feel like Tristan's is a comedy, but, like, half of his audience is just going to walk out crying when as soon as, like, the dog dies and they just start fucking with it and, like... Yeah, but, Joe, you have to take into account all the other dogs hate that dog. Okay. Yeah, that's an asshole dog. You know, that's oh, a I don't... dog. I just, I just... I just don't see how, like, people are... People are going to be horrified more than laughing at, like, all I can say is I would laugh at this. It sounds like the exact kind of dark comedy I'd go to see. Like, it really leans into the dark and the ridiculousness. And, like, you're not going to not know the premise of going in. Like, no one's going to blindly watch this. They're going to know the fact that, oh, the dog dies. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be shocked by it. So anybody who goes into this is going to know they're getting a dark comedy out yeah. of it. You're not going to have half the audience horrified because they know what they're getting into. You're not mm-hmm. going to see this if you don't want to see a dark comedy. And I think these characters, Charlie Day, Danny Putty, and Bob Odenkirk, they could bring a bit of the lightheartedness to it like it's still going to be a dark comedy but i think charlie day danny putty especially their interactions they could really like have that com- comedy that takes this absurd situation you're at your boss's party and he has this really expensive breeded dog that's kind of like that and then it gets killed and you're like what do i possibly even do right now you know everything's on the line and these guys are so stressed about their work and they're stressed about their careers and now they have to think on their heels and pull off this ridiculous impossible scheme it's not much less impossible than baking bernie's Bernie being alive like that's the whole premise of this is ridiculous it's not no one is going to fake a death of a of a of their boss and just have him be fake alive for this whole weekend like I wanted to lead into the ridiculousness of the weekend of Bernie's the premise we've mentioned it before that the movie's not very good people remember the premise people remember like the physical comedy of this ridiculous premise 80s premise and I wanted to make it even more ridiculous and make it a little bit darker too yeah, I feel like your movie, like, girls are still going to see, like, a dog on a poster and be like, oh, let's go see, like, the dog movie and be horrified. Where my angle was more like, okay, it's Dr. Doolittle, it's, you know, A Christmas Carol, where I more went for, like, the young family approach of, you know, like, parents taking their kids to see this Jack Black comedy about a guy that talks to dogs. Yeah, you made, like, They're a safe, animals. fine, like, okay comedy movie, I guess. Like, it's something that people would go see and be like, that was, like, a pleasant watch, you know? No and one people are going to have nightmares about, about your movie, though. Yeah, that's awesome. That's you know, you want to make it a memorable dark comedy. You know, I really wanted to make mine feel special and feel unique. And people remember Weekend at Bernie's because the premise was so absurd. And I think this premise is very absurd. It would make it. People would be like, "Oh, did you hear about that dead dog movie with Charlie Day and Danny Putty? You got to see that crazy dead dog movie." And they're not going to be like, "Oh, we got to." Yeah, see people that said you should Scrooge go see the room. And the room's fucking ass. Like no. Yeah, one's... and the room's hugely popular. No one's going to see your movie. It's just like, maybe they will, but they won't think about it afterwards. Like, it's just going to be another forgettable, like, Jack Black, Goosebumps 2 kind of comedy where people watch it and then don't think about it afterwards. But mine's going to be ridiculous. Right. It's going to be trending on Twitter. Right. People will be talking about it. Here's, here's my thing. Bobby's making the final call, so I'll let him decide if you guys need to make a final point, but I have my decision. I, I think I do, too. So. All right. I, I don't think I need to hear any more. Okay, if your opinion differs from mine, then I'm going to ask him for it 
for some for some final thoughts. All right. Well, here's my thing. I don't know if this necessarily helps, Tristan, but I have to stick to my guns, and I have to stick to what I argued for my fucking Poltergeist movie last week. I'm not going to see Joe's movie. It sounds like a very average, shitty kids movie, just like Bobby's Poltergeist crap that he pitched. And Tristan sounds more like the type of movie that I would watch that is so ridiculous and very dark that I would go see it because it would pique my interest and I would have to check out what the people are talking about. Joe's is a movie like the Dr. Doolittle movie with Robert Downey Jr. that came out. No one cares about it. Parents are going to watch it with their kids and not care about it, and the kids are going to forget about it. Tristan's is a movie that I'm going to watch and remember and think is outrageous, and I'm going to go with that because that's more my style of... uh, of comedy and it, it's the only one of these that I would actually watch. Um, Joe's is just a dumb kids movie and Tristan's is something so ridiculous that I think ha- people have to check it out. So Bobby yeah. d- disagreed that my Poltergeist movie was better. So I don't know if he agrees with me on that. But well, I just um, thought your Poltergeist movie sounded. I, I thought your Poltergeist movie sounded terrible. But honestly, um, I it took me a while to wrap my head around Tristan's plot because it does sound horrifying but and and also joe's even though the the story does sound bland i like jake kasdan i think he did a good job with jumanji movies i think those are much better than the plot sounds if you just read those but yours does sound very safe and in the genre of like dr doolittle it does sound like something that i wouldn't go see and tristan's like something i have to see just based on how ridiculous and crazy it is but also could bring in some really dark humor so as weird as it is i think i'm giving tristan the point for the dead dog dr doolittle movie (laughs) i I will say before this episode started if i had to vote for which one of my movies lost it would have been that one that i was like i couldn't figure out what to do with it beyond like a generic fucking like yeah if, if your movie wasn't generic it would be hard for me to pick tristan's but it was so bold compared to a, a much more kind of basic movie that it, it was like I had to go with the, the more interesting pitch. Interesting how that works out. Um, anyway, so that gives Tristan a point. Um, yours was terrible, Johnny. But shut your mouth, Bobby. My Poltergeist was like this cell level Air Bud movie. It was ridiculous. And they chose you. But, you know, instead of being spiteful like Tristan and picking, uh, the other pitch because of something I did, I <laughs> stuck to my heart. So, um, because I'm an unbiased judge, unlike the rest of you. Bobby, um, no. No. Joe, you lost. What are we doing next? You have a movie made for me and a movie made for Bobby. Which one are you more confident in for the judge to pick you? And we've split on almost all of our decisions, I think, between yeah. like who's making the call between you two. So I think I'm going to go with Perfect for Johnny. And right. uh, I'll let Tristan right. go first. All right, let me Let's get see who knows me better. Tristan, who I met while we did this podcast, or Joe, who I've known since college. Let's go with uh, who's going first. We have another. Co- we have a last comments. Do it. Who's MP Mitch twenty five? Is the, I don't know. Is this somebody? Uh, that's that's got to be Michael. Oh, okay. Yeah, because yeah. Michael Patrick. Yep. Okay, he says Johnny still being an awfully sore loser from last week. I see. He also said Tristan's movie sounds hilarious. Right. And that's yeah. it. Look, 
he's on my side. Look, I, I thought I was going to lose that one for sure. Hey, I was just you won, you, you, won o- you won over all three Mitchell brothers with a dead dog movie. So <laughs> <laughs> I think that's impressive. All right, let's try and win over the other Mitchell brother. We're starting with Johnny. Uh, my movie that I went with, of course, I feel like it's the one to go with. It's Highlander. Uh, my, I don't think we've we done that pick. premise yet. We have not, so I will read that one. What movie is it? Highlander. Highlander. All right. So, Highlander came out in 1986. It has a 69%, a nice little score on Rotten Tomatoes. The director is Russell Mulcahy. Sure. Um, When the mystical Russell Nash, played by Christopher Lambert, kills a man in a sword fight in a New York City parking lot, he leaves the silver um, of an ancient weapon lodged in a car in the process. After brilliant forensics uh, specialist Brenda Wyatt, played by Roxanne Hart, recovers evidence of a mysterious we- of the mysterious weapon, she and her partner, partner, Lieutenant Frank Moran, played by Alec- Alan North, um, embark on an investigation of Nash that will land them in the middle of a dangerous, centuries-old feud between powerful immortals. So... Tristan, what do you got? All right. So uh, outside of a movie theater, uh, Connor Lee, played by Juji Hoon, the lead from Kingdom, which is a great show John recommended that I watch, and it was like a really kick-ass action. I would love to see this main guy have some action roles, so I went with him as my lead. And out for my director, I used Simon McQuaid, who just did Mortal Kombat, and I know Johnny was a big fan of that one, me as well. And I think he could bring out the, the action chops of this guy. So I have him playing a character named Connor Lee. He's confronted by and battles an old enemy, uh, even Faisal, and he he has exchanged a couple of words with him and then uh, brutally beheads him. And there's probably a good point to mention here that uh, Eamon Faisal has like one line and then gets his head chopped off in the first scene. He's played by Rami Malek. I know Johnny hates Rami Malek, so I want to have him get killed in the first scene, get his head chopped off. You know, one way to do it. Uh, so in Johnny's per- perfect movie, Rami Malek is brutally killed in the opening scene after barely delivering a single line. We learn about a clan that we learn that Connor Lee is an immortal who's part of a clan of Korean Buddhist warriors who must unite to fight to the death against a clan of racist Christian conservatives mm-hmm. in a battle to control an ancient power. So I'll go through my cast right now on my good guy side. Like I said, I have Connor Lee. He's kind of an immortal warrior. He's from Korea. He's been living undercover recently after being uh, sent out from his from his clan now he has to return back after being gone for many many years after he's been confronted by uh, Faisal I have Kim uh, Kim Lee a- uh, Kim Lee who plays a friend from Connor's past uh, Kim Kim Lee is p- uh, played by a uh, Ludi Lin who played Luke Kang in Mortal Kombat uh, and then I have a leader kind of role who's like the mentor to Connor he was a fighter in in the previous life he's gotten a little bit older now and he's played by a uh, Lee Young hoon the lead man from I Saw the Devil, another great, great movie that I would never have watched if Johnny hadn't recommended it to me. And then lastly, I have uh, Ba Du Na, uh, a female fighter. She was great in Sense8. She was also in Kingdom for a little bit. She's, I think she's the main female character on that show, if I remember right. Uh, Are you talking about Warrior? Warrior, sorry, I wrote the key wrong. <laughs> yeah, warrior, it's, it's definitely warrior. warrior. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just to get that right for all the audience. Warrior, great show. Cinematic. And she's a fighter who joins Connor on his quest and is kind of a love interest throughout the story. And in my my bad guys, I have uh, Josh Lawson, who played Kano in in Mortal Kombat. He's kind of a long-time rival 
of Connor, and he's uh, been kind of like a shit talker to him his whole life. I also have uh, Matilda Lutz, who was in Revenge, a really great indie action thriller. I'm not sure if Johnny has seen that one or not, but I know it's a great one. I think you would like it. it has that kind of feel that I think Johnny likes in his movies. Wait, and then what? Uh, Revenge. It's like an indie oh, yeah. revenge kind of thing. Yeah, I pitched uh, a movie with that director. I love that movie. And then my lead bad guy is the most entertaining actor on the face of the earth, Nick Cage. Uh, he gives some great cageisms, and uh, he showed it recently, like Willy Wonderland, that he can pull off a chop still, even at his age now, of like some action kind of uh, roles. So it's a pretty simple kind of plot, similar to Highlander. You just get these two ancient rivalry clans who are in a battle for control of this ancient power. You know, you get an ex cast of experienced Korean action stars. I really don't like when they cast action stars who don't have any action history or experience, or like they just have the star power or something like that. And these have Korean Korean star power, of course. These are known actors, but they also have the experience of being action stars. Uh, and you also get to have you get to watch them fight and kill a bunch of racist white Christians, who I know uh, me and Johnny are not exactly fans of. We mentioned on our Jackbox episode that maybe the world would be better off if we had Buddhists go on a killing spree. <laughs> killing a bunch of racists, you know, so I went with that for my premise here. You get big villains that you want to see killed, you want to see fight against these good guys, and of course, you got Nick Cage. Give him the energy, bring in that star power you need for a movie to actually get made, but I think Nick Cage could be the great kind of ridiculous, bring the energy you want for a Highlander reboot, and really be that big, crazy leader bad guy you want to see taken down, and you also get to uh, have Ju Ji-hoon, who was great on that show be a lead in a movie. And that's my pitch. All right. You hit some elements there. Not gonna lie. I'd say you hit so. some aspects that I'm uh, curious in. So, um, my other question for Tristan, real quick, is you said, who who is your guy that you keep mentioning is from my show? Uh, the, lead, the leading guy, yep. Juju Hoon. Who the fuck is that? He's a lead character. Andrew Koji? Of Kingdom. What's Kingdom? I'll send you the link in the IMDb. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, Johnny, Kingdom is a show that you should watch. If you haven't. If you haven't seen it, I'm oh, sure you like oh. it. It's right in the same vein as Warrior. Yeah, it's very right. similar. He, oh, it, okay. If you haven't seen, yeah, like, I think uh, Tristan got. I mean, don't do that because Tristan shows, kept mentioning but... Kingdom, but the show that I recommended to him was Warrior. But Juju Moon is in The Spy Gone North um, and uh, the TV show Mask, and I know who that is. But Andrew Koji is the guy that I. Yeah, Kingdom and Warrior are both really good shows in similar veins of, yeah. of style. and It's South and Korean. Like yeah, it's. Yeah. I have to watch Kingdom. What's that on? Uh, Netflix. Netflix. Yep. Yeah, Netflix. I'm excited. I got a new show to watch. Um, all right, because I know Tristan nailed a lot of the points that I like, so I'm excited to watch the show that he keeps talking about. So, Joe, what movie did you go with for a movie made for Johnny? I went with uh, the Lost Boys. Interesting. So, um, little fact I've never seen. It's it. interesting because I chose both Highlander and <laughs> Lost Boys. Yeah, what the fuck? Those were not the two movies that I said. I was like, oh, Bobby, these are the two maybe obvious yeah. choices. No, they were both my movies. 
right. so I uh, am interested to see what you guys do with it. All right, so my director... But I do own Highlander, and I'll tell you this. I had this in my hand, and I planned on buying it at Target because I had never seen it, and then I forgot I had it in my hand, and I walked out of the I, store. I like Highlander <laughs> more than I should... I like Highlander more than I should like Highlander. It's a, it's, it's. I'll tell you this. Dumb. I mean, I'll tell you this now because both of you obviously have one movie left to pitch. When I texted Bobby the rules, I said, "What movie would you like to see made for you?" And he said, "I'd love to see a great Highlander movie." Yep. So, right. I'm interested to see what Joe does here. Oops. All right. So my uh, director, obviously Gareth Evans, said that. My lead, Michael, is played by Andrew Koji from Warrior. Uh, his twin sister in my movie, Sam, is going to be played by Sonoya Mizuno, uh, who Johnny knows, but if you don't know, she was in Devs and Ex Machina. Their father is going to be played by Ken Watanabe. Uh, the character of the character of Star is going to be played by Lupita Nyong'o. Uh, the character of Alan Frog is going to be played by Lakeith Stanfield. Uh, the main vampire, David, is going to be, he's kind of like the wisecracking one, is going to be played by Dave Batista. And then uh, the two other kind of main vampires in the movie that are, like, there will be others, but, like, the two other ones that there's focus on. It's going to be Dwayne, played by uh, George St. Pierre, who I wanted someone who could fight well, believably, and he's a former UFC fighter, but in film he was Baltrock the Leaper in Captain America Civil War and then the Falcon and Winter or yeah or Captain America Winter Soldier and then the Falcon and Winter Soldier and then uh, the other one is played by Latif. Yeah Falcon and Winter Soldier uh, Bird Boy and Bucky Yeah that too And then the other one is Latif and Joe called it on our episode Falcon and the Soldier Yeah <laughs> Yeah and then Latif Bucky and the Bird Brains Yeah Joe Furrows, I think. All right, we and got Joe back. back. Um, so we lost you basically at, during your cast, um, right after, um, I think, the last one you George said. George St. Pierre was, was the George last St. George St. Pierre, yeah. Okay, so George St. Pierre, because I wanted someone, you know, who could fight. And like I said, he was in Falcon Winter Soldier and whatnot. Uh, my next one is Latif Crowder, who people might not know. But uh, Latif Crowder, people might not know, but he did most of the fight scenes as the Mandalorian in The Mandalorian. So here's my plot. Uh, Michael and Sam are two twins born in Japan, raised around the world by their Air Force dad. Uh, when their dad is sick, they move to Santa Clara, California to take care of him. Both were trained in like a special form of martial art, which gives them like, enhanced powers. Uh, Michael sees Star, played by Lupita Nyong'o, and instantly is attracted to her while walking the boardwalk with his sister. Uh, meanwhile, Sam falls for Alan, who runs a comic book shop on the boardwalk. He has a conspiracy theories conspiracy theory about vampires in the air area. Uh, Michael hits on Star and asks her to hang out when her boyfriend David walks up. Uh, David says that he should definitely come along. During the night, David reveals that he and his friends are vampires. Michael uses his fighting skills and powers to get away. Uh, the rest of the movie is essentially Michael and his sister fighting the vampires as they randomly try to kill them. Uh, the movie ends with all of the vampires in Santa Clara being killed using Alan's knowledge of vampires and the twin skills and powers. So uh, most of the bulk of the movie is just uh, a lot of violent and creative kills uh, because the villains just can't be punched to death. It's like stakes through the heart, pulling them out into the sunlight and just different variety of ways that they have to do to kill vampires. And that's my pitch. All right. Well, I liked making this rule, but I feel like this is going to be a very difficult decision to make because you two definitely both made movies that I would be 
watching day one of whether in theaters or streaming. So this is going to come down to the fight. And Bobby, yeah. as someone who knows my taste, but the, you aren't the deciding factor, do you have any questions for them? It's really it's tough because honestly i get both movies i think both again i'm not the final judge and it's hard to pick one that is made specifically for you but i i want to say that tristan nailed a little bit more of the plot and joe nailed a little bit more of the team behind it and the acting and all that um so i guess so for joe kind of why is your plot like specifically made for johnny and tristan why did you choose like a couple people that you know, uh, Johnny may not know or may not be aware of at the moment. But you guys can fight that. I don't need to hear you to answer that right now. I'll so say, Johnny, I'll say my, my question... Oh, yeah, go ahead. My only question would be this. I'm going to be honest with you. I've never seen either of these movies. Never seen Highlander. Never seen The Lost Boys. They've always been on my watch list, and I own, I think, both movies. But I've never watched them. You two need to convince me because I like both of your casts and I like your pitches. Why does your movie interest me more than the others? If these two movies were sitting next to each other on HBO Max, why am I clicking on your movie before the other one? All right. I'll start because I know my answer. So basically, in Highlander lore, the only way for an immortal, which is like what one of Highlanders is, is to Chop be heads. is to get their head chopped off. Which is nice. You can watch that. I mean, you can watch that once, but I feel like one of the more interesting things in mine, because I know you like a variety of kills and using various weapons with a vampire, there are more, like it's a stake through the heart, pulling them in sunlight and there's more than just like one way to kill a vampire. And and I like my movie more because you have the different range of powers. You have like the vampire powers versus uh, the kind of martial arts type power. And I feel like that could be more of an interesting dynamic going against each other. And you can get, and I wanted to go more of a variety of fighting styles in my movie. I think mine feels like a nice, really fun Korean action movie that feels a lot like Johnny would be into. And I think a Highlander has that kind of premise where you can lean into the ridiculousness, can lean in, it's purely a, an action, like, Highland is all about the fights, you know, it's all about, like, the the, the fun, and I think it, this feels like much more of a Johnny movie to me, where you have, even if it's people he doesn't necessarily know, like, they're, I know that Johnny likes discovering, like, new Korean movies, new Korean actors, and I think he'd be really into this, like, if he saw this and he was like, okay, I don't necessarily know who Juji Hoon is, but he was really good in this, I can't wait to go watch Kingdom, I can't wait to go watch all the stuff he's in, and we might necessarily know like some other people like maybe he doesn't know he just hasn't seen kingdom but maybe he watched this and he's inspired to go watch kingdom i think this would this would inspire johnny to go on a binge of watching other movies and discovering new actors and discovering new stuff and sure joe like just gives johnny a bunch of what he wants but i think yeah what that's what it, what's i know supposed about to johnny do. is that he want he also likes to discover new people and discover new actors and discover new new ways of storytelling and i think this feels like something johnny would be really into not necessarily as much. I don't think he'd be into a Lost Boys movie. As a huge fan of Lost Boys, I don't think it's a thing that he'd be into. No, that's why I, you can change it up and adapt it and to make it more similar to what? More of his style and more intriguing. Because like, it's teenagers and stuff in the first one, and I wanted to make it more... Uh, more. You know, I increased the ages, make it more like a fun action fight movie, where the first one isn't really like an action fight movie. And I think... I, fe I feel like... The thing with yours is, like I said before, it's just going to be a lot of the same type of thing with sword fights over and over. And I feel like with, you know, you said Johnny likes to discover new things. Johnny likes to see 
different type of fights and i feel like i bring that type of edge and and i feel like also with like the side actors that aren't the fighters like sure he loves nicholas cage but i also know he likes lakeith stanfield and i think like having surrounding your talent that's more there because they can fight with quality actors can make a more intriguing movie and a more entertaining and better movie like, i gave actors Lupita who can Nyong'o. fight and also actors who can provide a lot of entertainment value like Nick Cage can be just pure entertainment. I think that's just, he's just like unfiltered fun. You know, when you mentioned when Joe was off uh, air that he has this like bizarre look at his craft, he'd be, and I could see him talking about this role like super seriously and saying, oh, I leaned into this and this and I was inspired by this. And I would just, I love watching Nick Cage's interviews and him talking about like his craft and his acting and he gets really into these roles. And he, I saw a thing recently where he was doing a screening and someone asked him like, how do you feel when people tell you you go over the top and he said, well, there is no top. Like, I just go. Yeah. And I think that's what Nick Cage does. And that's what this movie does. There's no top to this movie. It's pure ridiculous. It's like, you're like, oh, there's all you can do is chop off heads. And it's like, there's plenty of ways to chop off heads. It's not just like a sword chopping off a head. We saw in Mortal Kombat, you can get a, a, a hat and chop someone's head up with that. Like, you can be creative with your action. And it's I think that... Hat, baby. Yeah, Simon McQuaid showed he can take what could have just been guys punching each other in a really bad, lame Mortal Kombat movie and made it something really entertaining where all the fights felt different, even if they were, like, similar in concept. Like, he really was able to lean into that action and find creative ways to, to do that action. And I think he has that experience, and I would really like to see him do this with this cast and I, this movie especially. And one, my one big negative against uh, Nicolas Cage, we talked about it before the show started, in the Green Hornet movie, he wanted to play a white Jamaican role. I'm afraid of what he might want to do in a korean action movie of like what direction he might want to go and that can be potentially be maybe not the best route of what he could do might well he's the literally movie cast as before. the leader of the bad white guy so he can't really like change that up like he's the leader of the bad the bad white christian gang you know the 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 clan that's been in at war with these guys this for centuries you know he what's he gonna do that if he's playing the bad white christian guy he's not gonna be like oh i'm a jamaican like he's playing you don't know with nicholas cage though. Though. should be <laughs> okay i'm going to be honest i think yeah. i have my decision it was close but i think i've decided and i don't think i need to hear anything else yeah, and um, we were just texting, and the reason that I asked the question that I did is that I think we were both on the same page as to why someone lost this point. Yeah, so Bobby, um, just go into the head of Johnny Duke for a second and and pick who you think made the better movie, the one that I would be first in line to see. Who do you think that was? I think this was extremely close, and it came down to... I think a singular choice and that was the director um i think that um although joe's is probably the uh stock choice for johnny with gareth evans i think he's a fantastic director i think that with mortal Kombat, it's not a very well directed movie it's a movie that is really fun it's a movie that has some fun action and like some some dumb fun kills I don't think that was the strength. I don't think that was something that um, benefited the movie. So I think, to me, that's, that is why I was leaning Joe, even though I think the plot and the casting was very close. I was leaning Joe based on that choice. Okay, so this movie, this rules, obviously, make a movie for Johnny. And I'm going to be honest, the movie that would have uh, 
if I wrote this for myself, if it was a make a movie, you know, for yourself, it would have been Manhunter, and it would have been Kang Ho Song as the detective. Obviously, everyone knows him from Parasite. He's the best. He's my favorite actor um, of all time. And Choi Min Sik, who was the serial killer, and I saw the devil being Hannibal Lecter, and Bong uh, Joon Ho would have been my director. That would have been like number one. You can't beat it if you went Manhunter and went with like a Korean film. But while I disagree with Bobby about the directing being the weak point of Mortal Kombat, I think the directing of Mortal Kombat was an issue in terms of he nailed every single character that was um, that he had a basis off of. Kano, Sub-Zero, Cabal with the He's about to get his soul sucked. And all the fun things that I loved about that movie, um, I think he nailed those things. But I worry about him as a director because the lead of the movie is the only character that he kind of made up. And that character fell so flat um, that I don't necessarily think that this director is strong enough right now for me to think that he can make something not based off of complete, like, okay, this character already exists. But Highlander does exist, so maybe he can make those characters more interesting. But I think at the end of the day, Joe slightly edges out Chris, uh, Tristan because I really love his cast. Um, Sonoya Mizuno is key to a movie that I would want to see. Like, if she's in anything, I will 100% watch that day one. While Tristan had... Um, uh, Lee Byung Hung, who is incredible and I love everything he's done. I'm not as familiar with his, but he is correct. I do love discovering new people. I think at the end of the day, what it came down to was directors and Gareth Evans uh, is swinging 100%. And while I love Mortal Kombat, it's not even close to the same level as how much I love the Raid movies. So I think Joe just has the stronger director. And when I watch a movie, the number one deciding factor for me is director. I don't care about the cast as much. I don't care about anything else. If I follow a director, I'll watch every single one of his films. Gareth Evans, I'll see whatever he makes. He could make the next Smurfs movie, and I'm going to watch it because I like that director. Um, and to me, that's the most important aspect. So what that does is ties the game at 3-3. Three to three, And what that means is good for me because Bobby, who yeah. is the... Unbiased, non-title owning person um, gets to be the deciding factor. So if Joe wins and earns the title shot, or if Tristan wins and blocks Joe's shot and gets to face Bobby for the title shot, I'm not making the final decision, which at the end of this fight, which I think has been an amazing episode, I think you guys have been so close on all your fights, I think the best way to decide the winner is definitely Bobby making the final decision on this. So I'm very interested to see... um, who Bobby uh, decides is the victor because you guys are tied going into the final rule. In the final yeah. Rule. So and Tristan, again, yeah. Very close. It goes first. Yeah. All right. Uh, so should I just give the rule in the movie or should we just go first? <laughs> talk about... Talk, um, uh, yeah, so yeah. the rules obviously make the perfect movie for Bobby. Um, yeah. Tristan, say your movie... And yeah, I, I went, think at this point we've given the description for everything. Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Along. 
Yeah. Yeah, because he has. I know what movie he has, and I know what movie I have, and we've done the discussion yeah. for both. So Tristan, all you have to do is decide if you want to go first or second in your pitching. Yeah, for my movie, I went with Manhunter, and I'll go ahead and let Joe go first on this one. All right. Uh, so sure. obviously, I chose Highlander, uh, as you can tell, because it's the only one I haven't done yet. So my director is uh, Shane Black. Uh, my Russell Nash is going to be played by Ryan Gosling. My Juan Ramirez is going to be played by Antonio Banderas. And the role of the Kurgan will be played by Tom Hardy. So, after suffering an accident that gives him severe memory loss, antique dealer Russell Nash has changed. He has become depressed and is down on his luck. Uh, he is eventually discovered by Juan Ramirez, who walked into a shop looking for a Christmas present for an old friend. Ramirez tells him that he is one of the last remaining immortals and that his name isn't really Russell Nash, he is Connor McLeod. If any of the other immortals find out his condition, they will try to kill him and be the last remaining immortal. There is a joke that if he's immortal, he can't be killed, and Juan Ramirez tells him that an immortal can be killed, but only by beheading. Uh, Nash assumes the guy is crazy and sends him on his way, but Ramirez leaves his card. A few nights later, or that night, Russell has flashbacks to his time before the accident, and a few days later, he is discovered by the Kurgan, the most evil of the immortals. Uh, Nash barely survives and calls Ramirez. Ramirez trains him in sword combat, and it's basically a kind of typical hero's journey story in the skin of Highlander with a style of Shane Black, and that's my pitch. All right. Joe definitely nailed some things I like. I have a few notes on I think what I would have preferred for that type of movie but I think you nailed, nailed a ton of it so Tristan what do you got? I uh, like if you like I said earlier I'm with Manhunter and I kind of just made mine like a really tight direct uh, kind of like a dad detective movie a nice like thriller and I think who can pull off a really good thriller is Joel Edgerton I think his movie uh, The Gift was just a really really good character thriller and I wanted to get back into that genre so I, this is a kind of that's kind of the tone and the feel I'm going for with my movie uh, for my FBI profiler, Will Graham, I have Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, for Jack Crawford, the FBI agent that works at Will the whole time, uh, I have Hugh Jackman. And as my Hannibal Lecter, I have Bill Skarsgård. And my FBI director, who is kind of a smaller role, but he's the one giving the orders to these guys, I have Joel Edgerton himself. He likes to put himself in, in somewhat supporting roles in his movies, so I would have him take on an FBI director role. And mine's a bit of a prequel, because I'm telling the story of essentially how Hannibal Lecter ends up caged by the time we get to him in in the stories we know. Uh, so Will Graham, he's an FBI profiler. He's dealing with some mental health problems, budding from some of his previous cases and casework. He's contemplating, looking for a new line of work. He's not sure if this is working out for him and his mental health and his family. Uh, but he's called in for a particularly gruesome crime, and he's telling himself, maybe this could be my last one. So a local political figure has gone missing, leaving a bloody crime scene behind him in his home. Uh, so Will, Will Graham and his uh, partner here, Hugh Jackman, are assigned to this case. And it's obviously a very high profile case because there's some like political filler connections to this guy going missing. And meanwhile, because of his mental health issues related to previous casework, Will has been assigned to seek help from a young forensic psychiatrist and get some mental health treatment. And that psychiatrist is, of course, Hannibal Lecter played by Bill Skarsgård. I think he could pull off this kind of chilling, unnerving, but has that, that little bit of charm, you know, that you want out of Hannibal Lecter, the guy who's a little bit of a seductive kind of presence that Will can't help but connect to and open up with even when he, uh, in that role there. So we have dramatic tension there, of course, because we all know who Hannibal is. We all know his 
violence and his truth behind the character. So you, immediately you're like, similarly to when you watch the Hannibal show, like as soon as Hannibal shows up, you're like, oh god, like this guy is Hannibal Lecter and he's getting into Will's head. Like that's this that's the relationship I'm going for. It's a similar relationship with the head in that show, but unlike Joe, I didn't, you know, tie my pitch backwardsly to the show that without bringing back like, the guy who <laughs> made the show what it is. But whatever. And then uh, as Will begins to confide in Hannibal. He, we get more and more anxious knowing the truth, and we can tell that Hannibal is kind of tickering in jo into uh, his head and getting in there and manipulating him a bit. Uh, so Will and Jack begin to slowly close in on the killer. They learn that he is a tooth fairy. I brought that character back from Manhunter, and the bodies begin to pile up, so they really have a lot of pressure. These people are going missing and missing, and Will begins to discuss the case with Lecter during their sessions, and uh, Lecter is... We have these kind of conversational scenes where rather than being in like a cage and having glass between them, it's it's just in a therapy office, and you get those kind of conversational scenes that I think make Hannibal Lecter such a fascinating character. Uh, and at, since uh, Will is opening up to Lecter about this case, Lecter is you know a step ahead of the authorities on this. He's getting ahead of them, kind of getting ahead of the evidence, and working his way to try and get to sever his connections with the Tooth Fairy. As you slowly start to see that they're more and more connected throughout the movie. And then we get this kind of final confrontation where they capture the Tooth Fairy and Will is searching the Tooth Fairy's house and finds like this layer where he's doing all his killing and he finds these letters that he's been sending back and forth between him and Hannibal Lecter and he realizes the Tooth Fairy was a patient of Lecter and Lecter's kind of known about this the entire time. So Will goes and has a final confrontation with Lecter in his office and uh, he uncovers like a hidden room where Lecter's been storing and eating the bodies of the victims. And Will is attacked by Lecter, triggering an intense mental break. And Lecter is captured and imprisoned in a cell, similar to the ones that we see in the feature entries of the series. Uh, but however, Will's mental breakdown kind of drives him away from the forests and into an early retirement. He gets offered a job as a professor at a university, setting up kind of like what his post police job is going to be. And in the final scene, we see Lecter sitting silent in his dark cell. Lights kind of buzz on. Lecter, Lecter smiles his back to the camera and says, hello, William. And we get like, oh, William's now visiting Hannibal Lecter. He has this kind of like attachment to Lecter at the end. And that's my pitch for that. Okay. All right. All right, Bobby, you're making the final decision. Do you have a question for um, either of them? It's interesting because if, if either of you were to work in Taylor Sheridan or Alex Garland, that would be like my top kind of director choice for, for a movie. I mean, Joe definitely hit on, like, I love the nice guys. Um, Shane Black is definitely, he's a little hit or miss, but when he hits, he hits hard. And Tristan nailed the, I really do love a detective thriller. Um, and you did nail that aspect for sure. Um, for Joe, I guess my question is, how much of this movie, like, what percentage of this movie is a, is more of a Shane Black comedy versus, like, more of an action kind of, you know, like an action comedy? Uh, I feel like there's definitely, like, a little bit slightly more action. Like, a lot of the movie is uh, Ryan Gosling's character, like, somewhat relearning how he is and reacting to that, but also just reacting to the absurdity of the situation of, like, there's immortals and he's an immortal and he has to face this crazy maniac immortal played by Tom Hardy. So I feel like there's, like, the Shane aspects that, because that's, like, a lot of what his comedy is, is, like, these people reacting to these mm -hmm. situations that they're in, but there's still, like, the fights and stuff like that. 
where he has where the Kurgan attacks him and he has to survive the first initial attack from the Kurgan and then him attacking the Kurgan and there's still like the sword right. fights and stuff that Highlander is known for. So I feel like okay. it's slightly more of a Shane Black comedy, but there's definitely like the action elements involved. Yeah, that's my just showing Go tanks and random other Dragon Ball Z characters. Yeah, I barely right. heard what Joe just said, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, my long way around. No, is I, I feel I like the... it's more Shane Black comedy with like the action elements. Okay. Involved. And honestly, I don't have like a question on Tristan's. You just hit on. You both hit on very different aspects. Yeah. Of good luck judging this one. It's um. They're very they're different. Both, but I, both, I, but I, yeah. I, what are your thoughts, Johnny? My only question's for Joe, and that question is: Shane Black always has uh, Christmas involved. Oh, that's what I said when, it, like, Christmas is coming up. Christmas is yeah. coming up, okay. and that's how him that and his mentor meet. Is because his mentor is buying a Christmas present for his old friend or an old friend. All right, I respect it. That's what I missed, and I was like, "Wait, I missed the Christmas aspects. Got to have a Christmas aspect." Eugene, Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, other than that. I don't have any questions. We're going to get down to the nitty gritty because we're at two and a half hours. Uh, you guys have five okay. minutes, and at the end of it, Bobby will decide who is the victor. I think Ready Joe Eugene's a really exciting director. I think he he's like a new blood in terms of a director. I think, and when you get into, I thought the gift was just like an incredible debut for him. It was such a really thrilling watch, and I think you take that level of tension, you take that level of thrills, and you apply it to a detective thriller, and you just bound to have something really really engaging and really great to watch and i think my cast is is great i think jake gyllenhaal hugh jackman they can all they can pull off i mean we saw them together in prisoners as detective leads together so in a way like they're both trying to solve a crime together so i think we've seen them work together in a similarly toned movie so i think we can see them pull that off i think Skarsgård's a great choice for hannibal lecter he has like that young kind of look that i wanted to go for with hannibal lecter early on in his kind of career as a killer and I think he has a charm that I'm looking for I think Jolderson is just a really good pick I think mine just feels like a really thrilling watch and I think mine would be a great uh, just movie in general even if like despite being a great Bobby movie I think this would just be a great movie it would be something that people would love to see and see Joel Edgerton's back in his thriller genre he's early in his career and this could be the one that really cements him as a really good director as someone that we can't wait to see more from yeah, I feel like with mine uh, I, I like. I was trying to figure out who do I want to cast as my Juan Ramirez to replace Sean Connery because when I see Sean Connery, I definitely think of a guy named Juan Ramirez. But I thought of Antonio Banderas, and I thought of I think Antonio Banderas in a Shane Black movie, like his kind of style would be entertaining to watch and interesting to watch, and it'd be a throwback to his, you know, role as Zorro. Uh, so I thought that was interesting, and I think Ryan Gosling and Shane Black proved that they work together well, and I'd love to see him back as like the lead in another uh, Shane Black movie. And as far you know, Tom Hardy as the lead of like this as this crazy maniac, evil, immortal, the Kurgan would be I think really fun and really entertaining to watch. I think my big knock against Tristan is like I understand like the thriller aspect, and it definitely has that vibes, but I think my one my big knock of it i guess is i feel like it's almost maybe too much of people like sitting and talking with the whole like therapist aspect and i don't know if and i think joel edgerton is a good director with the gift but i don't know if he can sustain that for two hours he might i mean be the gift to, is but... practically all conversational you know and i and it's not like every scene's sitting in the office talking like hannibal lecter has a presence but he's not like the main character <laughs> but you're still following the characters as they're solving this 
solving this crime, you know, so you're talking like it's just going to be Hannibal Lecter sitting there talking all day, but that's not what it is at all, and Hannibal Lecter is like a supporting character in this movie, similar to how he's been in all of these movies, really, all the good ones at least. Alright, can Johnny stop distracting me just showing things I like? <laughs> I've just Johnny been zeroed in, I'm focusing on your things Johnny like. just are holding up things I like. <laughs> Wait. Alright. Yeah, Zelda, Bomberman, Pennywise, I get it. Alright. Yeah, we got Star Pennywise Star in that Fox. movie. I do love Star Fox. Okay, back I had to the Pennywise and my Bane and Captain Jack Sparrow movie. Um, yeah. I, I used him way these. better. I don't than have a Nintendo 64 at my house. Because those are mine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I own them. Talking about Bobby's stuff to the screen during his pitch. During his pitch exactly. Where are we even at right now? I okay, don't know. Uh, oh, we're just fighting about which is which is better: my Shane Black comedy Highlander or your thriller Manhunter movie? Which it's like awesome debating movie. apples and like T-bone steak. It's like I don't even. Yeah, nobody. Nobody's like, man, I can't wait for I the apple. I choose T-bone steak. steak and like, fuck yeah, because mine's a T-bone steak. Mine's the mine's the T-bone steak. Joy. Yours the like apple. Yours is yours is the apple. It's like a nice little sweet thing, but it's not something that is going to be remembered. Joel Edgerton. Everyone that where... people remember, kiss kiss bang bang. People remember the nice guys. Like yours is just another thriller in the long list of thrillers. It's Joel Edgerton's thriller though. It's going to be his his movie that puts him back in the conversation the gift was like a huge <laughs> hit not just in like people watching it people talking about it people were like wow joe edgerton's debut movie is like so intensely good and i think this puts him back in that direction it brings him back to the thriller genre it reunites him with some really really good actors i think this would be the joe edgerton movie that of all joe edgerton movies this is going to be the one that i can't that i can't i would love to see you like this would just be such yeah. a good move for him but as far as you know a perfect movie for bobby bobby did rank the nice guys number one as his favorite movie of the 2010s and i think you know you bring back that nice guys vibe and potentially this could be his favorite movie of the 2020s so bobby but, do you have your decision i have mine I, I think I do, but it and it's matter. it was very close. Um, I'm not really. I mean, I, I'll let you say what you're gonna say, but it, it definitely will come down to what my decision is for sure. Here's my thing. Bobby and I, at the end of the day, do have pretty similar uh, movie tastes, so I can only base this off what I would pick. If I, like I said, if these two movies were on HBO Max or another streaming service, which would I watch first? Because I would definitely watch both of them. Shane Black, like Bobby said, is hit or miss, and I think he's strongest when he does like detective style movies and focuses more on his comedy. And I don't think any of that really enhances a Highlander movie. And I think Tristan picked a director and a cast that really, really makes a great Manhunter movie. Um, and I know Bobby loves Sons of the Lambs. I know that's a, a, a character that he'd want to see. And I think Bill Skarsgård is a great choice. That's why he's holding up Pennywise. Um, and I, I think at the end of the day, if I were to be choosing, I would go more in the direction of uh, Tristan's Manhunter. But Bobby has more interest in Highlander than I do. And that's probably why I ended up going with Joe last round is because I don't really give a shit about most fantasy movies. Um, but Bobby likes more of the Highlander style movie than I have interest in. So I'm interested to see what he thinks of this. But I don't think Highlander uh, fits the directing style of Shane Black, and I think Manhunter fits the directing style of Joel Edgerton based on the gift. 
Right. And, and honestly, look, this was very close and it came down to, I think one movie getting kind of caught in the middle, kind of in the middle of what I would want. Like it had an element of the, the people behind it that I would love. And it had a, like the movie I would love, but they didn't mesh those two together. And I think that Joe's movie, I do love Shane Black in a lot of things. And I do like love Highlander. I would have preferred a more serious take on Highlander. Um, something that could kind of develop more of a lore and develop a kind of a franchise. Because I think it's really fun, but in a way that can be taken seriously instead of a Shane Black comedy. And Shane Black is best when he does show off his comedy, and I don't think that fits as well into what I would picture in Highlander for what I would personally like. And Tristan's is more of a movie that, like, I didn't know I wanted until I heard it. And when I did, I was like, okay, I love detective. I grew up watching a ton of crime shows and detectives movies and things, and Hannibal Lecter and Silence of the Lambs, that's one of my favorite characters in movies. Um, Manhunter is is fine but the way that you pitched it and the cast that you did i love the gift i think that that just meshed a little better in my head and i think it was like probably like 55 45 like it was close but tristan definitely pulled ahead with the arguments and i think tristan gets the win oh man all right, all right. bobby I'm here's sweating. my question if because joe had david fincher as his manhunter director if tristan had picked david fincher instead of joe Edgerton, would he have won by a larger percentage um, the same movie pitch, but that different director. Because I know you love Fincher. I do love Fincher, uh, but it didn't really come down to the director choice for me for that one. Like I think it was just both of those would have fit. You know, Fincher would have fit, and Edgerton yeah. would have fit, and I would have pictured a little bit of a different movie, but I would have gotten the tone. I think it just came down to the mesh, and I think both of those mesh well to make a movie that fits well in my head to something that I would really love to see versus Shane Black with uh, Highlander. And Johnny's got the Joker now. And he's broken. But yeah, this was a yeah. very close battle. Yeah. For sure. Every almost every fight was close, other than the the Bane. Um, yeah. Johnny Depp uh, or Jack, Captain Jack Sparrow. Switching yeah. The, the matchup. That was Joe going into it was like I'm excited to fight this one. Yeah. Which I liked his idea, but I think he could have altered to. Uh, to make it a little more interesting. If Joe made that animated, it would have been really close and maybe he would have edged out Tristan in the end. My strategy think... for that movie was I'm just going to make that this movie would be ridiculous. So I'm just going to make this as ridiculous as fucking possible. And that was, yeah. my, that was my strategy. Mm-hmm. I was like, I feel like Tristan's going to go for ridiculous on this. So I'm just going to try to out ridiculous Tristan. And then he didn't go as ridiculous. ridiculous me. Jeff. Well, I think I did on that one. And that was my downfall on that round. Yeah, I think so. I think it came down to There's Tristan. There's a difference between making a out out like out ridiculousing someone and making a good movie and just making a bad well it's out it's out ridiculousing in plot versus out ridiculousing in character and i think tristan's made more interesting ridiculous characters in a plot that made sense and joe's i didn't get a picture of the characters and the plot didn't make sense yeah i I agree all right so we'll wrap this up because we're uh two hours and 40 minutes i'll just say this um, I'm going to go watch Kingdom, but I recommend the show Warrior to everybody starring was Andrew Koji. He's awesome, and I'm excited for anything he does next. Bobby, what are your thoughts on the episode, and do you have any recommendations? I think it was a really well-fought episode. I think it, it was 
one of the closest one we've had in a long time. Um, and honestly, I can't think of anything recently that I've watched that's crazy because I've been listening to a lot of 21 Pilots because their album's coming out on Friday. Uh, so I'm more into music. Yep, because I'm, com- I'm more into music right now than I am the movies. Uh, but I recommend listening to them. They're great. I've been listening to the Harry Potter audiobooks. Um, Tristan, uh, what are you... Are you excited to face Bobby for the yeah. number one contenders match next week? Winner gets to face mm-hmm. me for the title. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad I won this one. I was I was scared I was going to lose because I feel like it, once I started losing in a couple in a row, I just got on like a streak of losing, you know, and I lost so badly to Johnny that I was like, I cannot lose this one this week. I got to like really get on these pitches and really work them and I'm glad it paid off. I think Joe definitely worked hard on his too. Like I think both of us brought our A game for yeah. this. It was really hard to fight Joe on a lot of these. He had some really good ones. I'm going to look really quick. I marked down the ones that I thought uh, were particularly good for him because as much as I like attacking you and saying things are well, bad when I'm yeah. fighting, they're actually not. I loved my favorite pitch of Joe's was definitely his Manhunter yeah. pitch. And I, I'm I think very my good at Daniel Craig. Tristan was his Manhunter pitch. Yeah. I guess right. I'm very yeah. good at Daniel Craig serial killer movies. If you watched our Forgotten Episodes pitch, so or yep. movies, so yeah. where I had Daniel yep. Craig yep. as a serial killer in The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Uh, yeah, but I will say I hate this concept of rule versus rule because more often than not, you're fighting a movie that's like when it's movie versus movie, it's a movie that's somewhat similar to yours, maybe a little different. This when you're fighting a comedy, fucking Highlander versus a super serious thriller Manhunter, it's like. What, what do you knock on Tristan's? Like, it's, like, just a completely different movie. It's not like, oh, like, we both did Manhunter, and I feel like my Hannibal Lecter be- is better than yours, or I feel like my director gives more of a thriller vibe than yours. It's like, what's a better movie, like, Airplane or Die Hard? Like, they're just, yeah. like, it's just all what you're feeling in that moment. And I honestly find I those really this... interesting. Yeah, personally. I think this was a failed experiment, but it was something that was requested by our guests or by our uh, watchers and people have recommended it and we've been interested in the idea, but definitely based on last week, um, when I feel like Bobby and I came in with maybe our weakest pitches, um, but you two came in today and you fought hard and you, you had very good pitches. I respect you for it. Um, but at the end of the day, I do think this might've been a, a failed experiment in yeah. terms of, uh, trying to fight based on two completely different movies uh, with two different rules. So I'm glad we tried it, but I think we've learned that I don't think we need to stray away from our normal concept of the show. And I will say, uh, I I didn't say this, but I feel like my favorite pitch of Tristan's, surprisingly, is Dead Dog Weekend at Bernie. (laughs) <laughs> like when he started I'm like oh I know my movie's like weak sauce and like not that interesting but I'm gonna wreck him here because this movie has a dead dog and then as we were fighting I was like god fucking damn it I actually like his movie <laughs> yeah I did really appreciate that pitch from Tristan yeah um, and like I said it did remind me of my poltergeist pitch and I respected Tristan for that um, it was just ridiculous and, and like you said like if you're going ridiculous make a movie that I would check out because it's uh, something people are talking about rather than just a movie I wouldn't really care for. And I, I respect that. Yeah, I thought it was fun that we had so many ridiculous rules between this week and last week. We had, maybe the rule by rule experiment failed, but I think it was fun to throw in these like rules we would never actually use type thing. And 
it really inspired me to like be creative because when you have to do a body swap checks for obeying or you have to do something in the dr doodle universe you have to really like okay how am i possibly going to make this anything good or anything entertaining because nobody's ever going to want to watch a a body swapping Jack Sparrow Bane movie, but you have to make it watchable, you know, and that was a, a lot of fun. So whether or not the, the rule experiment failed, I thought it was fun to use these creative rules and I'll give Joe credit for being creative with his. I really uh, did like his his pitch for Manhunter. You mentioned that was probably the best one from him, but as much as I was knocking him for not bringing back Brian Fuller, I think he pitched a good movie for what it was and I'm, I'm not fighting against him winning that one. Yeah. yeah. What I will say, by the way, really quick before we wrap up, what I did appreciate with the rule versus rule is there was no automatic loss rule. Because a lot yeah. of times there is a rule each week that is so hard to pitch that it's going to lose both times it's used. And for this one, it's more of what movie did you apply it to? And you know, and then it may be a very different movie, but that rule is not going to lose. So yeah. I did appreciate that. Yeah. I, I agree, but I do think especially if you look I mean, maybe not. I'd have to look back on it because I think this episode was obviously so even. Um, and I think it's funny that, like, I would have thought going into it that Weekend at Bernie's was maybe like an automatic loss movie that both of them won on their pitch for that movie. I do think this, like, whether you go movie versus movie or rule versus rule, sometimes there's like a movie that you can't make better than someone else's, you know, and sometimes there's a rule that you can't make better than someone else's. But I do think. Sometimes when you're judging, you just got to go by, you know, maybe this movie sounds better, but this person used the rule better and I got to give them credit for it, even though it's a ridiculous rule, you know, like, and, and I try to do that when I'm judging, I try to kind of go on that with like, when I decided Tristan weekend at Bernie's, like I thought that was a movie that would never work with that, the rule he chose and he did it so ridiculous that I thought it would be fun. Um, yeah. But I, I do think, you know, you, you kind of either way come up with the same problem of, you know, luckily they matched up on Over the Top, but it, it, no matter what, like if they used a different rule on Over the Top, that movie would have lost. Yeah. You know, I, I, I looked. Way. I, I looked up the. I was like scanning down the list trying to figure out who fought what. The there were three movies that lost every time, and I believe that was Highlander lost both times, Scrooge lost both times, and I think Say Anything lost both times. Which is interesting because those are not the ones I would have picked. Those are not mm -hmm. automatic loss no. to me, at least. No, I think those were just how we pitched Scrooge, them. When I when I picked my rule of like make a movie for Johnny, the two movies that I had in mind were Manhunter and Scrooge, um, and neither of you went with those, and I thought that was interesting. But yeah. the other thing I forgot to mention, and we'll end it in a second, but the other reason I really liked Joe's um, Lost Boys pitch that I didn't mention in my decision on that was. The variety of kills I thought was a really strong point, um, and uh, I think that slightly edged out Tristan's like Johnny likes to discovering people. I think that was a good point, but I think Joe's variety of kills thing was a little more up my alley because that's why I love the raid movies, uh, you know, as much as I do. So, at the end of the day, though, this was a great episode. It'll be Bobby versus uh, Tristan next week. The winner, down, Bobby. The winner gets to face me for the title shot the week after. Let's go. And I'm very excited about that. Yeah. So if no one else has any final thoughts, I'll I, just I, say this. Joe, I, I just do have one final thought. While I wanted to win and I'm definitely, you know, upset that I lost, I am happy somewhat that Tristan won because I feel like he's definitely a lot better than a one in four competitor. And so now he's up to two and three. So th that was the one thing where I'm like, if Tristan goes one in four, that's like, 
he's definitely better than a one and four. That's just, I guess, how it shook out. But that's all. That that's was right. I, I think at this point, especially with the four of us going, like I don't think I'm going to have as confident as I am in most weeks when I come in. I don't think with the four of us being as strong as we are that I'm going to have as long of a win streak than in the other format when I got to face people that maybe weren't as strong as the rest yeah. of us uh, as far as this went. So on that note, um, thank you for watching. If anyone has uh, stuck around for the almost three hours we've been doing this, thank you very much. We support any uh, fandom that we get. And uh, this was an excellent episode of uh, Movie Change Up. And yeah, thank you for watching. Bye, everybody. Goodbye.